Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs. Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com I'm Ted for joining me on the line, co-founder of Girls Inc. and uh, the uh, creator of Baby Tando, the doll that uh, uh, she created and introduced to the market on the 1st of January 2006. Good morning and welcome to the show. Morning to you and your listeners and thank you for having me. We see a lot of uh, black dolls, if you like, around at certain toy stores and supermarket toy sections, for example. But there was a time in South Africa when you couldn't get hold of one. Yes, um, that's true. Um, I remember back in um, 2004, uh, five, when my my daughter turned two, um, like I went to shops um, to look for a doll and there was absolutely no uh, black doll that I would um, be comfortable to buy and say that it resembles her. I remember at that time uh, there was one that um, I think she was called Tandy. Um, she was the closest um, to a black doll um, at the time, but she was not made beautiful. So kids um, did not like her. So they preferred uh, Barbie, for example. So um, from there, um, I, I, I think I had that love to say that, you know what, um, why not create one for my daughter and all the other little girls um, in South Africa? Because some people might go, but why is that important? It is important because your little girl needed to be able to look at this doll and see what black beauty is, correct? Yes, 
yes, that's very much correct. And with the rise of bleaching um, these days, I think it's so important um, for us to, to instill that, that self-love um, um, to our kids at a young age. And what better way to do it um, through play? All right. Now, the doll retails for about 290 rand, and it's targeted to girls between the ages of 2 and 14. But uh, that's not enough for you. You're looking to bring about some inter- innovation in terms of uh, what this doll can and cannot do. Yes. Um, um, our company, um, it's called Girls Inc., because our, our focus is only on girls, girls between 2 and 14 years. So uh, what we want to do um, is... We want to have a, um, um, a shop where when you're a parent and you've got a, 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 a toddler um, and you've got a teen, both girls, you can walk into a shop and you'll be able to get other clothing, accessories, um, toys in under one roof. You know, um, other projects that we have is for Tando to um, talk um, in one of our, in most of our, um, um, if not all, our um South African languages, because we 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 we, we, we it's also very important um, to teach our kids um, the basics of their mother tongue. You know, um, for example, I've got a I've got a son uh, who's four years. Um, I really really struggle um, to get him to speak Zulu, and um, but he's he's very good to tell me about um, um, the Spanish Dora, um, gracias. You know, so. <laughs> If, if if little girls can be able to to to, to speak in their in, in their own languages, um, I think that, that that's um, to us uh, one of our dreams. We would have achieved um, something with just the little project that we're doing. No, indeed. Now, I imagine with uh, you looking to explore these innovations, it means that there is a great demand for the doll. So people are going online and purchasing it and having it delivered to their homes, and the girls are very happy people. Yes, they are extremely happy. I remember we, we've just uh, been at the Mama Magic um, Expo this past weekend, and the, and and, and it, it was amazing just to see the little girl looking at baby Tando, and and you can just see that they're seeing something that resembles them, and it's beautiful, you know. And even the parents also, they were they were like so they they were happy they to see something that that is beautiful because we've struggled as as black parents. Um, We've really, really struggled um, with, with the variety of dolls um, in the market. So um, us um, adding into the, in, into the doll market currently, I think it's absolutely amazing. And outside of uh, fairs like Mama Magic, where else can they find your uh, baby tundra? Um, we are online, so what they can do is um, to send um, e- um, send us an email at tando at Golds Inc. Girls with a Z, I-N-K, um, .co.za, and we guide them further. So, um, usually the delivery is around 60 rand, and uh, you get your parcel delivered to your door. And what is the uh, expected amount of time from placing an order to uh, a man or woman delivering the doll in front of the um, house? It's anything between two uh, and three days okay. after after two proof of payment. Days. Yes, yeah. And then, do they come with accessories? Um, so, if I bought one for a daughter, for example, I may have a couple of mm-hmm. months ago, and now my daughter wants uh, something more—I don't know—sparkly, more, I don't know, sparkly, more yeah. ethnic, <laughs> more. Do, do they come with those kind of accessories? Um, 
at the moment, because I, I indicated that we, we, we the business is self-funded, so we did not have enough funds to add um, more accessories. But that's our future plan um, to to have different accessories. For example, change of clothing, um, 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 different hairbands, um, like all sorts of accessories that we can include. Um, but as we grow, we're gonna add um, different things uh, to, to to baby tando. And one of the SMSs, Nontlanda, is from Moses saying uh, um, a fantastic idea uh, is giving young girls a sense of identity, uh, white dolls for white kids and black dolls for black, colored for Indian and kids. Uh, group identity should always be uh, embraced. And I suppose, one, your reaction to that SMS, and two, are you then intending to create colored dolls, for example, and Indian dolls for uh, for those kids? Um. I think I'd, I'd, I'd maybe just slightly differ uh, with the SMS because what we found out um, during our expos and, and, and all our exhibitions is that um, everybody likes the doll, whether you are white, you are colored, you are Indian. The baby tender doll, as is, they just love it. I mean, I was like so surprised because our first customers that uh, were buying uh, were white people and they loved the doll. So um, I think we've created... Although when we created it, it was for the African market, but we've just realized that actually we've created a South African um, doll that is that should be um, um, acceptable to everybody. So um, the second one is, are we planning to create? Um, of course. I mean, um, as we grow, there are so many um, things that um, are under wraps that we will um, um, introduce. So yes, that is also in the pipeline. Talking about how Mandela, how they love Mandela. Mandela hasn't given up armed resistance. Mandela knew and knows today that if they don't move, there's only one way. We either fight and die or get fight and get free. We don't have no other alternative if a government won't yield to legitimate demand and protest. And this hypocrite Bush is going to invite Mandela to the White House, leaving one White House, inviting him to another White House. A report in the Sunday Times newspaper has reopened questions about a rumor that's been around for decades. The arrest of Nelson Mandela in 1962 happened because of a tip from the CIA. A British filmmaker says he talked to a former CIA spy who told authorities where Mandela was at the time. That led to Mandela's arrest and imprisonment for nearly 28 years. For more on this, we are joined by Ashlyn Lang. She's Africa correspondent for The Telegraph newspaper, and she joins us from Cape Town. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. First, talk about Mandela's apprehension by authorities in 1962. I mean, he was an armed rebel at the time. He was known for being elusive. Why was he wanted? He he was wanted because he had taken the African National Congress's struggle into a sort of military dimension. He had convinced uh, other members of the party that actually you had to fight fire with fire, 
and it was no good constantly trying to be peaceful with a regime that was so violent. So he had launched the armed struggle, he had been abroad for military training in places including Libya, and he then effectively became public enemy number one for the regime. I think it's important for listeners who might think of Mandela as, you know, this freedom fighter, but there was a time when he was considered a communist enemy of the United States. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, He was designated a terrorist, in fact, for a very long time. Um, I understand that there had to be a special designation um, made for when he visited the U.S. once he became president, because technically he was still classified as a terrorist. Um, However, obviously, he became the world's darling, and uh, I think people, through a different prism, came to understand that sometimes you know, drastic measures might have been necessary when you were dealing with a regime like the apartheid regime in South Africa. And so now this filmmaker says he interviewed a man who's named Donald Rickard, who has since died. We haven't heard the taped interview, but you know, the report says that Rickard was a diplomat and he told the film director he was a CIA spy who told the apartheid authorities how to catch Mandela. And Mandela apparently was posing as a chauffeur at the time, is that correct? He was, absolutely, yeah. He was, he was posing as a chauffeur in a car with a white member of his party and was driving at night back towards Johannesburg from Natal down on the East Coast. And how has this news been received in South Africa? I mean, it's, you know, it's generated quite a lot of interest, as you would imagine, and it's fascinating, you know. I think enough time has elapsed now that you're not going to see any any real fury. Um, Mr. Mandela himself has been dead for a number of years now, but uh, I think there's a kind of poignancy to knowing that after all of this time, actually, yes, it was what we all suspected, and it did happen kind of as everyone imagined. We should say the CIA told us it has no comment about this, but I wonder, does this complicate U.S.-South Africa relations at this time? Well, it depends who you speak to. I mean, I spoke to a number of close friends of Mr. Mandela's who were imprisoned with him, who were defending him as lawyers. You know, they say, look, the West played an honorable and dishonorable role in in this whole long saga. Um, Yes, they may have tipped off the authorities to Mr. Mandela's whereabouts, but then later on, the U.S., it's thought, along with other government, foreign governments, pushed the apartheid government not to hang Mr. Mandela for treason. Uh, They visited him in prison when he was on Robben Island. Uh, The U.S. was one of the first places he visited when he was released from prison and it's thought that the U.S.'s role in instituting a trade blockade against apartheid South Africa was one of the uh, biggest uh, causes of its demise. However, the South African authorities, the African National Congress, as it becomes increasingly embattled itself, they are beginning to lash out. And, and we've seen recently a number of very senior people in the ANC accusing the U.S. of once again fomenting regime change. The U.S. envoy actually at one point was forced to respond to these claims that he was fomenting regime change amid this uh, revelation yesterday the ANC have repeated their claims that it's not just then the U.S. is meddling in our affairs, they're doing it again now. That's Ashlyn Lang. She's Africa correspondent for The Telegraph newspaper. We reached her via Skype. Thanks so much. Thank you. I wouldn't be out there telling James Bird, Simon, if, if, if you were to get a gun to, to kill him, that don't make it right. That don't make it right. I understand anger. I understand emotions. Would you have been telling John Brown that huh? violence is not the way? Would you have been telling John Brown, violence is not the way? Don't do that, Brother John. Violence is not the way. Would you, you know been- what? I don't like the way you ask me questions. I come on this show friendly. You act like you're laying behind the bushes. There's way you ask human beings questions, man. I didn't come in here to be dodging your damn bullets. Would How do you feel about John Brown and that? You, would you ask us? I'm through with it. 
the students upset at Seattle University, the students who decided to call for the firing of a dean by the name of Jody Kelly, that saga is not over. And something just remarkably disgusting happened today over at The Stranger, which decided to completely use their ideology to go after this poor uh, dean. There's a piece called Go Read, and it's in quote, the N-word, Seattle University Humanities Dean told black students who complained about curriculum. Go Read, N-word, is how this title is supposed to scream out to you. And they wrote, when a black student at Seattle University's Mateo Risi College asked Dean Jody Kelly for a more diversified curriculum, the dean responded by plucking a book from her shelf and suggesting the student read it. The book was N-Word, is the title of it, published in 1964 by the comedian and activist Dick Gregory. The student, who asked not to be named, shared her account of the incident on Thursday after university president Stephen Sundborg pleaded with a group of students occupying the college to drop their demand that Kelly resign. The occupation. The occupation. You mean the, the group of students who are breaking the law and trespassing entered its third day on Friday. Sundberg sat with the group, praised the students for their activism, and said they had helped open his eyes to internalized racism, but he insisted that they were taking the wrong approach by asking Kelly to resign. So they, they met and they, you know, they did what they did, which was complain and explain, this is how we're feeling, this is what went down, and Sandberg listened, or Sundberg listened, and he heard him. But then one woman got up, African-American student, And she said, this is according to The Stranger, she said she met last spring with Kelly to ask for a more diverse, culturally responsive curriculum. In response, Kelly, quote, used the N-word. She said it three or four times, the full word, end quote. In the student's telling, Dean Kelly said the students could reclaim the word if she wanted to, citing a black comedian's comments. The student said she broke down after her meeting with the dean. Quote, I did not go to class, end quote, she said to Sunberg and the assembled protesters. Quote, that word still hurts. It is not her place to tell me not to be offended. This woman needs to be removed. I'm worried about the students that come after me. I don't want this to be the reason that she resigns. Everyone has stories, but this was just too traumatic. So the author over at The Stranger emails Dean Kelly and tries to get some explanation. And he says, okay, like what, what went down? So Dean Kelly says, I remember speaking with the student about Dick Gregory's book by that title. Perhaps you know the work. I'm not in the habit of repeating titles and certainly not that one, but I did refer her to that book. Thank you for asking. Then he goes back and says, I'm I'm unclear. Are you saying that you referred to her to the book but didn't say the title out loud when you said so? Then she responds, the student asked for a more diversified reading. I compiled and pulled the book from my shelf. The title, as you know, could startle. So I relied, relayed the story of Dick Gregory explaining to his maternal ancestors why he titled it that way. His response, quote, Dear Mama, wherever you are, if you hear the word N-word, again, remember they are advertising my book. I'm not in the habit of ever using that word. I believe it demeans us all. So he follows up again saying, Could please confirm whether or not you've used this word or not. And she, not, she did not respond to that email according to that particular uh, report. So now the author of the book, the N-word, has spoken out and sent in a comment that I wanted to read to you. It was passed over to me. It said, please allow me to take a moment to issue a declaration of support for Dr. Jody Olson Kelly, dean of this college. Follow me now. A dean suggests that a student read my autobiography, N-word. 
which has sold over one million copies. And the student is offended, and the campus goes wild, demanding the dean's resignation. This is the problem. Black folks tolerate Howard University being named after General Howard, who became famous for killing Indian children, and Spelman College, which was named after Rockefeller's mama. Y'all black folks need to learn who your true oppressors are. The dean, who had read my autobiography, gave good advice. Today, I contacted Dean Kelly directly. I wanted to make sure she didn't disrespect the title of my book by using it to be a closeted bigot. I will be 84 years old this year, and I have battled true racism, and trust me, this ain't it. I look forward to visiting your campus and advocating for my autobiography to become required reading. When you see something like that, it really does just paint a different kind of picture of understanding what true racism is. There's no doubt that I'm sure this student portrayed any white person giving that book as potentially racist and uncomfortable. I believe that. There are a lot of hypersensitive students out there. But I think when you look at what happened, if everything that's being reported by this dean and supported now by the author of that book, it makes total sense in context. What about the context of the word? Isn't that important? Does anyone believe? I mean, just think about this for a second. Does anyone actually believe a dean of any student, of any college, will just start screaming the N-word at a black student for no reason whatsoever? Does anyone legitimately believe that that's possible in 2016? Because we're told now that racism has hidden. There's now hidden words. They're microaggressions. People have been really, really good about hiding their internalized racism by making it so internal that we are now looking at words and trying to say, oh, well, here's what you really meant. The coded language argument. You mean in a world of coded language and microaggressions, there are still people out there in the Seattle area, nonetheless, who are screaming the N-word at people? Who are even just using the N-word casually to a black student? Do you believe that? Or do you believe that maybe, maybe... There's some context there. Maybe we ought to get the full story before we decide to portray in a very disingenuous way what actually happened. And, you know, I look at some of the comments on the Strangers blog because, you know, every once in a while I go there and someone sent this to me. I don't make a habit anymore of going there because it's just it's not an actual news site. These are bloggers who pretend they're journalists. It would be the equivalent of me coming on this show and pretending I'm a journalist. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a reporter. I'm not an anchor. Every once in a while, if there's breaking news, I will take on the role of sort of a, a host who's doing his best to keep analysis out. I'm not a journalist. I'm a talk show host. I am paid to give my analysis and opinions. These people are giving analysis and opinions, and they're presenting it to you as if it's just journalism, as if it's unbiased reporting. And people fall for it. The comments weren't. The comments of a site that is known to be very, very far to the left, and that's okay. I don't care. They're all like, yeah, you're being very disingenuous here. And so I thought, now that I got that email from uh, the, the writer, I thought I'd just throw that out there. Because I feel bad for this professor. Or excuse me, this dean. You know, some, some poor woman who's probably spent her entire life trying to educate kids and do the right thing and actually gives a damn about a bunch of students who are insane. And she is legitimate in trying to understand their concerns. Whereas someone like me would dismiss their concerns right out of hand. I'm being totally honest about that, which is why I would never, ever survive in, in, on a college campus. Like I would never be able to be a professor or an administrator. I wouldn't. Because I look at somebody like this and I say, get the hell out of my office. 
you are unhinged. You are the victim of parents and other professors that have told you your feelings matter. That have told you everything you do, everything you feel, everything you, you think is justified and right. I would not do that. Jody Kelly, this dean, deals with these people on a regular basis. And she actually seems to give a damn. And to try to just take someone's career because you're offended by something. Because you were taught to look for stuff to complain about. Because you were taught to be a professional complainer. I wouldn't be able to deal with that. So I'm glad this author is speaking out. I'm glad people are saying, okay, relax. We're not going to fire anybody. I do feel bad for her because I do think she's going to end up resigning. And that's the unfortunate reality. These kids, they're like hostage takers. They take campuses hostage. And part of me also just says, you know what? Schools, you kind of created these monsters. You're the ones who created them. They didn't just learn this. You taught them this. There were adults in their life who taught them this is what they need to do. And all of a sudden, they go after, they start attacking their their teachers, the people who told them what to do. They turn on you. Good, I'm glad they turned on you. Part of me is actually glad that they turned on you. Part of me is just completely terrified that these are the next, you know, leaders of the country. Never, never, never I say, for the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Never, never, never I say, because the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Run that shit the fuck back. I, I remember talking about this a few months ago. There was an African-American woman who owns a thrift shop in the Redmond area. And she ended up buying a sort of bag filled of clothes. And in the clothes, in this bag, there was a KKK robe and uh, a loose noose. At least that's how it was reported. And she was understandably upset that someone tried to sell this to her. She is so upset that she's decided she's just got to sell her shop completely. She's like, I, I can't emotionally deal with the trauma that this event caused me. So she's trying to sell this thing. She talked to the Seattle Times. Her name is Leona Coakley Spring. She describes the moments that led up to realizing that she's been given this KKK robe. He said, I want you to look at these. So he passed them to me. He said, how much you would give me for it, too? And I said, well, you could probably get $60 each dress, if that much, because they're, they're kind of old. I said, okay, so what's your name? And he didn't answer. I said, so what's your name? I need to put on the check. And he said, um, um, and I thought, that's strange. He didn't even know his name. And then when Rick and Shane walked up, he rushed out the door. So then I opened the bag, and the robe fell out to its entire length on the couch. And so I said to Shane, I said, oh, it's a priest robe. I can't sell no. this. And Shane came over, and he said, Mom, Mom, I know what that is. I was like, a priest robe. Shane said, Mom, look at it again. So they end up finding this guy. He's 25 years old. I didn't catch the name in any of the reports. And I think part of the reason why is King County prosecutors prosecutors were like, we can't charge him with anything. There's no evidence that he did this on purpose to to elicit some kind of emotional reaction. This was not a threat. He basically says, the the story I've seen is that he was cleaning out a, a friend's house and he just collected a whole bunch of stuff and he tried to sell it or get rid of it. She doesn't buy that. He said, according to the police, that he didn't know it was in the bag. Okay, for a while there, I started to believe that. But then, if you 
didn't know it was in the bag and you know it hurt somebody so badly, wouldn't you come and apologize? Would you, though? I mean, just think, let's assume that it was, he's totally correct, total mistake. I would kind of not want to have anything else to do with that story at that point. I would be so embarrassed and almost disgusted that I understand why he might not want to go back to a person who, for all he knows, doesn't know that she doesn't believe him. Like, I would just, I'm out. I'm just not doing it. If you're innocent, or wouldn't you send a card or something? Or There's not like a Hallmark card for that, right? I mean, the, the, like when you just think about it, would you say anything? There's not, I, I'm sorry of this unfortunate series of event that led me to deliver like a grand wizard robe to you in, in error. I, I don't, like I get what she's saying, but man, I, I kind of also get why someone who made this error, or maybe he's just a dummy and he wanted to get rid of this robe, and the only way he knew was to sort of hide it in a bag of other clothes and just try to do it. And he walks in not realizing, oh, my God, it's an African-American woman who owns the store. Like, I don't know why I instantly believe this guy. I think part of it is because it's so it's so dumb if you were trying to do this as a means to, to harass someone. I just almost it's too dumb to be believable. Nevertheless, she's still really upset and she's selling this place. And I'm trying to find people to buy the shop. Ugh. I got to get out of here. I got to get it over with. It's the memory and not feeling safe. So I need somebody to come and get this off my hand. I just don't want it anymore. I don't know what's going to happen with me. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no idea. I'm numb. I don't know how to start something again. I feel so like somebody just walked all over me. Oh, it's just like you listen to that, your heart breaks for her. But what if it was legitimately a mistake? It, that's just how it seems. It's a weird mistake. It's not a mistake that's going to happen nine out of ten times. It's the outlier of mistakes. But I, I don't I don't know. So hopefully she sells this place. She's able to start afresh somewhere else. I just, I, I just don't know what to do with this. I feel so bad for her. I'll just say... Mistakes happen, and maybe this was a case of, of a mistake happening. Again, there, there was no legal recourse to take because there was no evidence that suggests this, this guy did anything wrong other than act really carelessly. As a child, Jefferson Thomas had played football with some of the white students at Central High. He naively assumed that once the other students got to know him, they would like him. They just, you know, would not accept me. Had me praying at night, trying to figure out what can I do to get them to like me. So are you excited for prom? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Jada Jackson talks with friends about all the typical stuff you'd expect to hear from a high school senior going off to college. At times, it's hard for her to believe how far she's come or how low she was just over three years ago. I started biting my hands and not even realizing it. And I used to have a lot of cuts on my hands and one time I actually tried to take my life because I felt like that's all I had left to do. I was luckily to not find Jada dead in that room. Her mom, Sabrina Real, had moved the family to Bellevue for a fresh start. It didn't work out that way. When I had first started telling my mom that I was being bullied, she's like, oh, you go to school to learn, you don't go to school to have fun. But Jada and her sister, who are biracial, say the problems were relentless. Jada says they were called the N-word. She indicates school officials had her search for drugs when there was no evidence suggesting she had any. 
and she says they told her to fix her hair. It had to be worn up or in a straight perm. When I lived in Bellevue, I felt like I didn't matter. Like, I felt like nobody wanted me there. And so I felt like I had to do something about it, and that it was my fault. She had a knife, and she was going to cut herself. She had wrote this big thing where she was going to take her life. After taking her daughter to the emergency room for an anxiety attack, Sabrina sought out a professional counselor. The lady told me, look, you need to get help. You need to get her out of that school. And that's what Sabrina did, moving the family and settling into this neighborhood in Sandusky. She completely changed the environment. So how is Jada doing now? Me and a girl, like, we keep changing back and forth. Like, it's at a steady one. But the last time I checked, I was number one, so... That's right. Always a good student. Jada is set to graduate next month from Sandusky, number one in her class. I feel like going from that school and having so many people doubt me and then coming to Sandusky High School and making it to the top of the class, I feel like that just proves that I'm not, like, I'm not a bad person in my life. It doesn't matter. Jada's case may be an extreme example, but it does stand for the premise that if as a parent you believe your child is being bullied, you have to look at making a change. Now, it may not be a change in cities, but it might be a change in classes or a change in schools. And if it's cyberbullying, that change may be in how your child interacts with the Internet. You're talking about millions and millions of kids who on a daily basis are feeling the effects of being cyberbullied. Jesse Weinberger is based here in Northeast Ohio, but speaks to students and parents at schools all over the country. I think parents are starting to realize that they don't know enough. Her book is entitled The Boogeyman Exists, and he's in your child's back pocket, meaning their smartphones. Weinberger says today's parents, she's one of them, must do what their parents never had to. That is, monitor their children's activities in a cyber world that didn't exist a generation ago. And it's a lot of work. You should be exhausted. Parenting is exhausting. If someone had told you how exhausting it would be before you did it, you might not have done it. That's why nobody talks about it. And the online world has only added to a parent's responsibilities. If you're monitoring, setting limits, and consequencing your children's tech behavior, which is the, the, the trifecta, that's the goal, right? And you're not exhausted and irritated, you're doing it wrong. She also says the cyber world has made bullying more emotionally confusing to teens and complicated. 58% of kids who bully now report having been bullied. She says if your child says they're being cyberbullied, consider taking their phone away for a while, not as a punishment, but as a change. Remember how Jada's mother changed everything by moving, taking her daughter out of the environment where she felt bullied. The Internet is just another confusing environment where your children spend time. The more you can limit that amount of time, the better off you'll be because they're, they're not available to be bullied. To that end, Weinberger suggests no cell phones for kids under 14. And we all make mistakes as parents, often over how much time teens spend on their phones. But remember. I don't think you can beat yourself up too much about the stuff that you have or haven't done in the past. Start today with limiting time. If that's all you do is limit time, regardless of what may have happened before, you're going to be headed towards a better, a better outcome. Speaking of better outcomes, Jada's family sued the Bellevue schools for discrimination and would not agree to keep quiet about her experiences, even for money. Jada definitely was behind that 100%. She did, didn't care about a dollar. In the end, the family settled for over $100,000, and Jada retained the right to talk publicly, including on TV, about her experiences. 
and I feel like it's my job now to help all the other kids out there who felt like I used to feel. And if you are or know one of those kids, remember that Jada was once somewhere close to where you may be today, and now she's on top of the world, at the top of her class. I feel like I earned it. Like It's so, it feels great. Change is possible. Change that will help you walk towards a brighter future. About as funny as a lynching. Oh, hush, boy, you ain't even see it. I've never seen a lynching either, but I know they're not funny. See, shows what you know. I've seen funny lynchings. No, you haven't. I have, so. Roscoe Patterson's lynching was funny. Yeah, so them niggas was like, Roscoe, you better leave time for Mr. Charlie and them crackers gonna fall for you. I'm like, man, fuck these crackers, man. It's Roscoe Patterson. Nigga, I don't give a fuck. I just don't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? White man can eat a dick. Eat my balls, nigga. There he is. Get that nigger. Oh. Hey, I, I got Come on, let's there go. Oh, hey, he's Watch out. It uh, wasn't really funny after that. Mm-mm. man is free on bail following his arrest on suspicion of hate speech directed at L.A. City Council President Herb Wesson. Now Wesson is expressing concern about his safety and that of his family's. Eyewitness News reporter Darsha Phillips is live in downtown L.A. with both sides of the controversy. Darsha. Philip, there are many people who take the podium at city council meetings and use racial slurs and curse words. But according to city council president Herb Wesson, this time was different. He says that Wayne Spindler directly threatened him. Now, Wesson held a press conference this morning saying that these types of antics at city council meetings need to stop. As a young man, I sat in the kitchen table of my grandmothers, and I heard them tell my aunts and my uncles the stories of liquored-up Klansmen running through the South, terrorizing black people. Council President Herb Wesson speaking out after receiving this speaker's card last week at a council meeting. It was a drawing of a Klans member with a noose in his hands with my name and the word nigga attached to it, and then a photograph of an individual hanging from a tree. This man, Wayne Spindler, admits to drawing those images. Spindler has attended city council meetings for years, sometimes wearing a KKK hood with a swastika and using racial slurs and cursing at the podium. They don't listen to us. The only way they listen to us is if we're emphatic. But city council is doing more than just listening now. Spindler was arrested for making criminal threats. This card was a message to me. Spindler, who has been thrown out of city council meetings and arrested many times, says he plans to fight the charges and sue the city. This guy is, is just using this as a ploy. He wants to get me and other people out of city hall. because. Now, we've learned that uh, the DA is still reviewing the case and formal charges have not been brought against Wayne Spindler. Live in downtown Los Angeles, I'm Darsha Phillips, ABC7 Eyewitness News. They say this is a place where angels
evening, everyone. I'm Steve Avis. And I'm Pam Moore. Crown Force Justine Waldman was there when Mayor Ed Lee made the announcement just a while ago. She joins us live from outside San Francisco City Hall, where that story is still unfolding. Justine. Pam and Steve, after three decades as a member of the San Francisco Police Department, embattled chief Greg Sir handed in his resignation today. He had faced mounting criticism after several high-profile, deadly police shootings, including another one that happened this morning with a woman who we're hearing reports of was unarmed in the Bayview District, and also the racist text message scandal. The people that you see here behind me were already scheduled to come here outside of City Hall to hold another rally. In hopes of pressuring the mayor to force the police chief to resign. But their calls, they did not need to send them out today because the police chief handed in his resignation after being asked so by the mayor. When we were inside that press conference with Mayor Ed Lee today, he told us that he had previously expressed his confidence in Chief Greg Sir, but that all changed today following another deadly shooting and also a meeting he held today here at City Hall with the chief. He then had to think of the best way to move forward. The mayor told us that this is not personal, this is not about politics, this is about performance. I have previously expressed confidence in Chief Sir because I know he agrees with and understands the need for reform. But following this morning's officer-involved shooting and my meeting with Chief Sir this afternoon, today I have arrived at a different conclusion to the question of how best to move forward. The progress that we've made has been meaningful, but it hasn't been fast enough, not for me and not for Greg. And that's why I have asked Chief Sir for his resignation. So again, the members that are out here uh, behind me here outside of City Hall, they are part of supporters of the Frisco Five. That was a group of uh, protesters who held a hunger strike trying to pressure the police chief to resign. Again, this was a already scheduled rally, but the people here are telling me, yes, they are happy that the police chief has resigned. I saw several members giving high fives and also hugging each other, but they do know that there is still a lot of work to be done to reform the San Francisco Police Department. The culture change comes from leadership. And Chief Sir was supposedly the leader of this police department that has been operating with impunity. And what we're saying today is that this is one step closer to the justice that this city deserves, but it's not done. We have to have a choice in who the next police chief is, what the police reforms are, and how the police conduct and how they have their culture permeating in the police department. So the new acting police chief of the San Francisco Police Department is Tony Chaplin. He was standing there right next to the mayor today when the mayor told us that he asked uh, Chief Greg Sir to resign. Uh, Chaplin has 26 years experience with the San Francisco Police Department. The mayor called him a committed public servant who's been with the Mission and Terrorball stations. He's also served on the gang task force and homicide division and also was working on the committee to bring accountability and transparency to the San Francisco Police Department. But the breaking news this evening, San Francisco Police Chief Greg Sir has resigned. Live tonight outside of City Hall, I'm Justine Waldman, Front 4 News. Uh, thank you, Justine, for that report. As we mentioned, it was another fatal officer-involved shooting that proved to be the final straw for the police chief. Cron 4's Dan Kerman has that part of the story.
Police say about 9:45, officers with the vehicle theft abatement team determined this white sedan was stolen. Uh, they got out of the car to approach the driver to, to make an arrest. That driver fled. Uh, she crashed into a parked car, uh, nose in to a, the, to, to a parked car. When the officers approached to take the driver into custody, police say the vehicle started moving backward and forward. And at some point, one of the officers felt it was necessary to discharge his firearm, uh, struck the, the driver once. The female driver was pronounced dead a short time later at San Francisco General Hospital. Whether or not it required uh, uh, the use of uh, deadly force is something that we need to look at very, very specifically. The mayor called for a thorough investigation just hours after the deadly police shooting and said he would meet with police chief Greg Sir and hold him accountable for his officers' actions. As we now know, the mayor met with the chief in the afternoon, called for the chief's resignation, and appointed Tony Chaplin as acting chief. At San Francisco City Hall, Dan Kerman, Cron 4 News. San Francisco's public defender, Jeff Adachi, had this reaction this afternoon to the shooting. Quote, police reforms and policy changes are meaningless if they are not accompanied by a major shift in police culture. I am reiterating my request that the California Attorney General's office open its own civil rights investigation. Unquote. We also heard from the Police Officers Association, but the president of the association says that it is too early for him to comment on what has happened today. Today's resignation by Greg Thur comes just one day after Steve interviewed the chief about the turmoil going on in the department and his efforts to try and make things better. So, Steve, of course, you were preparing another story for today when this all evolved. Um, what did Chief Thur say to you that stood out yesterday? He was mindful of the challenges facing the police department and he was committed to making those change happen. He felt like he'd made certain changes and there was more to be done. That was one of the reasons why when pressed on this question of would you resign, would you consider an early retirement, he said no. There are too many balls up in the air. There are things we're trying to accomplish and I don't want to leave in the middle of those efforts. Did he indicate at all that he had a sense that one more incident like the shooting that happened today might actually tip the scales against him? He didn't seem that way. He said that he felt like he appreciated the support from the mayor. He appreciated support from other leaders like former Mayor Willie Brown and constantly getting support from members of the community, perhaps not protesters, but people in the community who were saying, stay the course. He felt good about it. Of that. course, members of the Board of Supervisors, four of the progressives on the board last week also joined with the prote protesters in calling for his resignation. Nonetheless, he did not feel deterred by even that. The mayor felt like he had to ask for that resignation and he offered it. Yeah, all right. What the hell kind of cop are you? You know what I am? I'm your worst fucking nightmare, man. I'm a nigga with a badge. Nigga! This is Tia Graham reporting for the Real News Network in Pocomoke City, Maryland. It's been nearly a year since residents of the small eastern shore town waited to learn why their first black police chief was fired. But now details are finally emerging, and what they reveal paints a picture that is both troubling and profound. But as mayor of Pocomoke City, I feel that the town has been damaged. This was Pocomoke Mayor Bruce Morrison's response last summer when asked by the citizens for a better Pocomoke if the city's first black police chief, Kelvin Sewell, would return to his job after the council had fired him in secret. Would you work with us? We're asking the question with you. Would you work with us, with the majority of the citizenship in fulfilling our request to reinstate Kevin D. Sewell as chief of police of Pocomoke City? I just don't feel that right now we can do that. I would cheeks all back. I don't see that happening with the white and the I don't. At the time, Mayor Morrison was unequivocal. Sewell would not be coming back. 
Sewell was terminated last year in a storm of controversy. He claimed it was in retaliation for refusing to fire two black police officers who had filed federal discrimination complaints. You don't fire a chief who have a successful crime rate, low, lower crime rate. You fire a chief who don't, who, where crime is out of control. And that's not the case here in Pocomo City. But Mayor Morrison and City Manager Ernie Crofus suggested it was Sewell who had done something wrong. Being popular is important. But it's not the only criterion for being a police chief and not being able to go into reasons. But I, I leave it to your conjectures. What are the possible things that someone who's well-liked can be terminated for? But now a recent ruling by the Federal Equal Opportunity Employment Commission calls into question the statements made by city officials then. According to sources familiar with the investigation, earlier this month the EEOC, a federal agency which investigates discrimination in the workplace, found probable cause that Pocomoke City's firing of Sewell and another black officer, Detective Frank Savage, violated federal anti-discrimination law. The federal agency determined the evidence corroborated Sewell's claim that he was let go for refusing to fire Savage after he alleged the Worcester County Drug Task Force had participated in a series of racially charged incidents while he worked there. It's a significant challenge to the city and county officials who have intimated from the start Sewell was let go for reasons that were otherwise nefarious. A narrative that city officials touted that appears to have major holes. The Real News Network has obtained this. Pocomoke City court filings in a federal discrimination lawsuit filed by Sewell, Savage, and Lieutenant Darnell Green. In it, city officials failed to provide a reason for firing Sewell in the first place. In fact, all they offer are nonspecific causes for letting him go. The EEOC ruling and the lack of specifics in the lawsuit trouble White, who met with the Citizens for a Better Pocomoke Wednesday, the group formed last summer to push for Sewell's return. We've been asking questions. They said that... Um, we would definitely find out that um, Chief Sewell did something. And they said they couldn't tell us. They said it was a personnel matter and they could not explain it to us. But we would find out. But now in a lawsuit, uh, they can't come up with anything. So that does raise concerns for us. Also on hand was Sheila Nelson, candidate for the 1st District Council seat, who will be on the ballot May 31st after officials botched the April 5th election when a voting machine failed. She, too, expressed concern over the lack of transparency. It troubles many of the citizens of Pocomo simply because we already know, or I already know, that some citizens didn't know why he was terminated. Well, if those citizens know, why doesn't the other citizens know? Uh, I, it, it bothers us, or maybe they feel that um, they've run to a dead end. For now, the EEOC has scheduled a mediation hearing in between Pocomoke City officials and Sewell, during which sources tell us he can legally ask for his job back. If the city declines or is a no-show, then the Justice Department could intervene and sue the city. Whatever happens next, Pocomoke City officials aren't discussing what they plan to do. This is Taya Graham and Stephen Janis reporting for The Real News Network in Pocomoke City, Maryland. You know, I've always wanted to be a cop. To begin the program right now, uh, we're going to talk about an inquest that has been going on in Brampton, in Peel region, into the death of Jermaine Carby, who, of course, we've spoken about before on this program. Jermaine Carby was shot and killed by Peel Regional Police in September of 2014. Uh, no officers were charged in that killing. However, there has been a, uh, a coroner's inquest 
into Carby's death to try and understand exactly what happened and to try and prevent similar deaths in the future. Part of uh, the process of going through this inquest is not necessarily to find guilt. That has already been determined on the part of the officers. But lots of things are coming out in this inquest that we didn't know through the SIU, which is a very secretive process, and through our government, which has not really said much and released much about Carby's case. So this inquest is actually proving pivotal into understanding exactly how Carby was killed. On the line with me from Peel is Latanya Grant, who is the cousin of Jermaine Carby, who is the founder of the Justice for Jermaine campaign, and uh, she joins us right now. Hello, Latanya. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us once again. Now, this inquest, which you've been attending, as I was mentioning, has revealed a lot of information that the public and your family didn't have up until this past week. One of the most important facts, I think, is that no one knew the name of the officer who shot and killed Jermaine, and he has now been identified as Constable Ryan Reed. And not only has he been identified, he actually took the stand this week at the inquest to explain his perspective on how that evening went, and you and your family were there. Can you talk about that experience? Uh, wow. Well, you know, just seeing him take the stand, it, it was actually good to finally come face-to-face with uh, the person that murdered my cousin, and it was good for my aunt to, to see him as well. But he had no remorse. He had no remorse on that stand. I mean, he sat up there and he said that he would do nothing differently that night. And to hear that come out of an officer's mouth, like right after my lawyer presented information about my cousin, knowing that he had mental health issues, knowing that he was just a passenger in a car, knowing that that officer knew nothing about what that highway traffic stop was about. You know, he just got on the scene as an assisting officer, didn't even take the time to find out why the car was pulled over, and he rushed into the situation. You know, he, he said it himself. He got there at 10, 12, and he shot Jermaine by 10, 16. So within four minutes, he killed my cousin without even knowing nothing about him, not knowing his name, not knowing his mental health state, not knowing why the car was even pulled over in the first place. Now, I want to get into some of that. Because, uh, first of all, you talk about the car being pulled over. To remind our listeners who are not familiar with all the details of this story, Jermaine Carby was the passenger, not the driver, of a vehicle that was driving in Brampton Brampton one night in September 2014. And that vehicle was pulled over by a police officer. And uh, the police officer, after questioning the driver, proceeded to question Jermaine Carby. Now, LaTanya, it has come out that... Uh, the officer was questioning Jermaine. Now, we knew that, but he was questioned about what his reason for carding Jermaine and, and, and asking him questions was. And I use the term carding because the officer said himself he wanted to kind of get information about Jermaine Carby and, and, and for, you know, potential future investigative purposes. But he didn't explain why he wanted that information in the first place. So how did it strike you to hear that? I mean, we we knew that Jermaine was carded from the beginning. I, we just needed that to come out in the media. We needed for him to see it on the stand because the passenger of a car should not be spoken to by an officer in the first place. You conduct your highway traffic stop, you finish your stop with the driver, and you let the car go on the way. 
if that would have happened that night, Jermaine would have been here. However, that didn't happen. They spoke to Jermaine, and by them speaking to Jermaine and asking him for his name, he gave his name, even though he didn't even have his license on him. So that should have shown them that he had nothing to hide. They decided to ask for his name again, run it in a database, and do a carding street check is what they what the terminology they used on Jermaine. And when they pulled up his name, they seen information on him. They seen that he had mental health. They seen that he was an interest to police because he's been in mental health crises before where he's, you know, wanted the police to um, to try to hurt him. And they've tasered him and they, or he, or he's um, seeked treatment at the a medical facility and the situation was diffused. They also seen that he had um, warrants in, outstanding warrants in BC, which was on the second page of a CPIC. So that means the first page was red, which shows that Jermaine had mental health. It shows that he had um, situations prior, and this officer did not take the time to give that information to the officers that came to assist him, nor did the officers that came to assist the officer that pulled them over, nor did he try to get this information before he, you know, pulled up on Jermaine. And then I'm not sure what happened after that. Yeah, well, I mean... Go on. Yeah, I, I mean, I just want to jump in here because we are seeing other cases like this and we have seen other cases like this. Uh, I think of, for example, for example, uh, there's so many. Sylvia Clibbengatis, a woman in Toronto who was having a mental health emergency and called 911 and ended up shot and killed uh, on her doorstep by police. And she told them that she had a weapon and that she was having uh, paranoid thoughts. And she ended up dead. I think of Michael Elagon, who walked out of a hospital in a gown yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and was killed by police. And of course, most recently, Andrew Loku, who also, he lived in a mental health association building. Yes, exactly. What, so they knew where they were going. What, they knew. What, what can we learn about these situations of police dealing with people with mental health issues, what would you have wanted them to do with that information, Latanya? I would have wanted them to try to contact some type of mental health authorities and get someone down there to diffuse the situation, maybe even contact the the other police um the other police stations that have dealt with Jermaine and find out how they diffused the situation called for a taser earlier. You know, there's, they, they could have continued talking to, to Jermaine and, and, and backing him down. There could have been so many ways to diffuse the situation without shooting at Jermaine seven times. Latanya Grant is the cousin of Jermaine Carby, who was shot and killed by Peel Regional Police in September of 2014 and an inquest into Jermaine Carby's death uh, is is ongoing. Now, we're talking uh, about how things could have happened differently, Latanya, and the whole idea of this inquest is just that. It's to get recommendations um, about how situations like this can be handled differently in the future. But, I mean, uh, for your part... When you when you know that Jermaine was stopped and the officer says he didn't have an investigative purpose, I mean, it must be difficult to go through this inquest and to know that these things are coming out publicly now and that the officers involved, including the officer who claims to have moved a knife from the scene of the crime, that these officers were not charged with anything. It, it must be hard for you to have this knowledge. 
It's it's definitely hard. I mean, if my cousin was not carted that night, he'd still be here today. He'd still be with our family. He was carted. That is the reason why he died. He his um, rights were violated. You know, uh, his he was detained without his rights being read. He was detained without any investigative purposes. So not only did they card him, but they violated his rights, and then they shot him in the streets like an animal. And one of the shots, they shot him straight in his back, which that came out of the inquest as well, dead center in his back. And, I mean, seven shots came out of this officer's gun. He arrived four minutes, and Jermaine was dead. These are the things that, that disgust me. And honestly, for the whole recommendation system of the, of the inquest, my lawyer brought up the recommendations made in Michael Elegon's case and Junior Manon's case and Sammy and Tim's case. And their answer was that it takes time for those recommendations to be implemented. So while these are still not being implemented, people are still dying on the streets. So really, inquests are not doing anything except for wasting taxpayers' money. So you really feel that the process that you're taking part in right now is not going to make the changes that are necessary? No, it's not, because we've mentioned changes that have been that have been recommended before, and they haven't been implemented. My lawyer questioned Paul Bonner, who is one of the, the officers who creates videos that train these officers, and mm. he couldn't answer anything on the stand. He kept saying, it's not my section. I don't know. I don't know. I don't deal with that. It's another section that deals with that. And never did they mention that they're going to take into consideration training their officers on how to deal with people with mental health or how to gather all the recommendations made within the past couple of years and implement them into the training. There was never no, no talk about that. So they don't have any plan to do that. This is just a waste of time. And I feel we're just going through the motions. And Latanya, I want to go back to the most crucial element of this incident which was the claim by police and the SIU that Jermaine Carby had a knife in his hand the <laughs> evening of his killing and that he exited the car and um, waved the knife at the officers and got too close to them, which is the reason why they decided to fire. Now, uh, some people who witnessed this said that they saw a knife. Many others who witnessed it said they didn't see a knife. But one important person who said that they did see a knife at the scene was a paramedic who responded sometime later. There was information about this paramedic seeing the knife that came out in the inquest. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So this uh, paramedic stated that uh, when she was on the scene, she seen a knife. And uh, my lawyer questioned her on the knife, you know, what color was the knife, how big was the knife. She, she didn't know how to answer it. Was the knife on the left? Was the knife on the right? She didn't know how to answer it. Um, you know, maybe it was uh, my partner's knife. Uh, did you see your partner with a knife? No, I didn't see my partner with a knife. So, but you're sure you seen a knife? Yes, I seen a knife. There was an officer that testified after her that said the scene was cleared before the paramedics got there. So there's no way that the knife would have still been there when the paramedic got there. So, I mean, wondering if this knife was here, if this knife wasn't here, it's it's always been raising suspicions. You know, it, it came out this week, last week as well, that the, the knife that was found or the knife that was given over to the SIU seven hours later 
was a serrated kitchen knife with a brown handle. And apparently, or conveniently, I should say, those handles don't hold fingerprints because my cousin's fingerprints were not found on the knife. And this was confirmed by Tony LaParco of the SIU. Only his DNA was found on the knife. This knife that Jermaine had in his waist with no cover and was sitting in a car in a VW slouched in a car. My cousin is a 6'3 man, and he was sitting in a car with this knife, came out of the car, didn't adjust his waist, and had it in his waist the whole time, but this officer did not see but this officer didn't see it and then said he pulled it out at him and, you know, chased him down with this knife that wasn't on the scene when the SIU got there at twelve o'clock. But Jermaine was killed at 10, and a knife was given over to them at 5.07 a.m. It's one of the more shocking and troubling parts of the case, and it's one that even the SIU director, Tony LaParco himself, said would create uh, an understandable questioning in the eyes of the public, that if the public wondered whether or not a knife was really there, that he actually could understand that given what happened. Exactly. Now, now this is all taking place, this inquest— and the killing, of course, took place in Brampton. And Brampton is, as people know, and our listeners, many of them from Brampton, it's one of the most ethnically diverse regions in the country. In fact, you know, we talk about ethnic diversity in Toronto. Brampton's population is two-thirds what's called visible minorities. But the five-member jury of Jermaine's inquest are all white men and women. Um, that's been reported, and I found that interesting. What do you think about it? I, I questioned that myself. The first day I got there, I I was wondering what happened. And the first thing I wanted to know is how was a jury picked? And for a jury to to be picked, it, it does mention that they pick it from a toll of uh, people who are voters. And I know that there are a lot of people <laughs> in Brampton that vote, especially in the minority. So how no one on the, on the jury is even of color or anything other than Caucasian, it puzzles me. Now, Latanya, you have been, since this all happened, asking a lot of questions, trying to find your own information. And, you know, we've seen since the time of your cousin's killing that the group Black Lives Matter has emerged and has been trying to raise a lot of really similar questions to your family uh, about police accountability, about the SIU. How does it feel for you to see Black Lives Matter coming out here? They've been at the inquest as well. Um, how, does it, how does it feel to you to see them out here asking these questions also? It feels good. It feels good to know that I have support, that there's people that, you know, that believe in the same thing that I do, that we deserve answers, that we deserve to have transparency from these bodies that oversee us that apparently don't want to be transparent, but we're supposed to respect and they're supposed to serve and protect, but they're not supposed to tell us what goes on when an investigation happens. Even for the fact that the person who kills an individual does not have to be interviewed by the SIU, that is a law that I think should be changed as well. And I'm just happy that Black Lives Matters are, are rallying together. I'm happy that we're we're starting to stand in solidarity to um to stand up for, for what we believe in and, and for the rights of our people and that, you know, officers and people of authority should 
definitely be accountable for their actions and stop using excessive force. One more thing before we go. Your aunt and Jermaine's mom, Lorna Robinson, was quoted um, in the middle of the week during the inquest. You know, she sat there and, and she listened to a lot of this testimony. And she said afterwards that she thought that, you know, she was disappointed with some of the testimony of the officers who have been speaking on the stand. I just want to know how she's doing and how your family are coping with all of this. I mean, it's it's like we have to relive Jermaine's death all over again, you know, almost two years later. And uh, these are answers that that they could have given us around the same time it happened so she wouldn't have to go through this trauma twice. These are things that she could have been, um, that could have been released to her ahead of time. And just for her to know even the extent of what happened and because her son was carded, that's what led to her son not being here today. It's devastating. You know, my family's definitely upset, and I hope that they put this carding thing to sleep for good because they see exactly what it can it can cause. And I hope they train their officers better on how to deal with people with mental health issues and on how to not harass people and how to not um, violate their rights. Because, I mean, these are people that we're supposed to respect, but we can't respect them if they're not respecting our rights. And I, 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 I mean— I got to leave it there, Latanya. We're all out of time, I'm afraid. Okay. But I just want to say thanks again for joining us on the program. Okay, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Latanya Grant, the cousin of Jermaine Carby. Well, the law was in the South at that time that a white man cannot rape a black woman, period. Hmm. That was the unwritten law. That was the common law all over the South. Black women, I mean, that came in, I mean, with their clothes torn, all like that, and said some white woman, some black, some white man raped them, rather. They run out of there. Yeah, you don't, you know, you know, you don't arrest a white man for raping a black woman because they, you know, it was just understood. White men don't rape black women. Black women are loose. Hmm. That's a false charge. Wow. And this was just understood by black people. Understood. It was wow. understood. Don't you bring, don't you come in this in this jailhouse talking about some white man raped you. We're going to arrest you for a false charge. If you stay in here talking about it. Now get out of here and don't come back unless you want to go to jail yourself for disturbing the peace. Uh, you know, we, we, all, we cover many different stories dealing with the police abuse in this country. Uh, here's one out of New York State that is stunning. It hurt me. It hurt me. It hurt me. It hurt me. only got three years. What did you want what I would have got if I would have... Uh, Justin Thompson is a rapist. Roy motion there from Melintra Montanez after finding out that the police officer she claims raped her on Valentine's Day in 2015 got no jail time. Now she is fighting back filing a $7 million lawsuit against the officer, police chief in the city of Syracuse. The 40-year-old claims Chester Thompson raped her after she called him, called him to her home to report her teen daughter missing. After the encounter, Montanez sought medical treatment and reported the incident to police. 
Thompson was arrested a month later, and in December, he pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor counts of official misconduct for having sex with Montanez and another woman that same year. Here's a twist. Thompson claimed the sexual acts were consensual, Humble. and he was only stripped of his police badge and given three years probation. Montanez's attorney recently gave a statement about Thompson's slap on the wrist, saying, quote, We've had information from several sources that this is not the first time that Chester Thompson has engaged in this type of malfeasance. And it appears that this may have been going on for a period of years and that people high up in the Syracuse Police Department knew about it and didn't take prompt remedial measures against him. Joining me via Skype from Atlanta uh, is someone who's been focused on this case, Sean King, senior justice writer for uh, the New York Daily News. Uh, Sean, uh, this is, look, I mean, this is shows shades of Daniel Holtzclaw. Yeah, absolutely, man. And. You know, what's frustrating is there was ample evidence that this young woman was raped in her home. Uh, she had never met uh, Officer Thompson before. She calls him in distress, and um, he eventually admits that there was some type of sexual intercourse there, And uh, but she reported it as a rape that day. And um, she had no motivation to have intercourse with this man. He's a, I mean, I, I hate to be crass, but he's kind of a, a raggedy old white man that she had never met and had, would, would have no interest in at all. She had literally just had a baby. She was still recovering from a difficult pregnancy. And uh, she's there in the living room, home with her infant uh, child, and is, is raped right there in the living room of her home. So she and, reported uh, the same day. She yeah. sought medical treatment. She took a rape kit. So did the rape... So how in the world this does it get prosecuted as a rape. See, here's what's wild, man. The prosecutors, and she has a really great attorney, but her, her, the prosecutors are trying to say that there is a, a stipulation in the law just for police in the state yeah. that if a police officer uh, forces himself upon a woman, that if she does not fight back or specifically, like, scream no. I mean, th these are quotes from the prosecutors that it that it's misconduct but not rape. And what's crazy, Roland, is she's here in her living room, a stranger with a gun. He literally asked her if she, if she loves her son, her infant son. She's scared to death and only participated because she was wondering, is he going to kill me if I don't do this? Okay, so, and, so the prosecutors are saying what? She didn't scream? Yeah, the prosecutors are saying, in essence, that she didn't fight back enough, which is crazy. Right. And as she her didn't fight back just... enough against a dude with a gun who's a cop. Mm -hmm. Right. So Absolutely. who the hell was she supposed to call? Nine one one. She had to call nine one one. That's the thing, man. That when, just like in the Daniel Holtzclaw case, you know, in that case, you have thirteen different women who felt just like this woman. What am I supposed to do right now? Who am I supposed to call? Who's going to believe me? I mean, she said. She thought about choking him. She thought about running to get a knife and stabbing him. But in that moment, hell, if any of us, me or you or any of us were in that position, we would all be torn as to exactly what we were going to do to be able to get out of that room alive. And that's the dilemma that she was faced and all of Holtzclaw victims faced. But the crazy thing is that another woman reported that this same thing happened to her multiple times, wow. just like Holtzclaw. And um, in the past few days, I've had additional victims reach out to me and to, uh, and to the attorneys 
And so it's uh, it's crazy. And so he's just free, man. He didn't spend a, a, a day in jail. Wow. Sean King, New York Daily News. We appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Talk about unbelievable story. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 21st, 2016. So I have been told compensatory call in. Feel free, chime in if you have thoughts, observations, uh, questions uh, you would like to share. Uh, certainly we'll get to workplace racism uh, down the road. Uh, the number to dial 641 seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, for folks who are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported us uh, down through the years, seven-plus years. I uh, hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, even just this week alone, uh, in addition, uh, I think some folks had said before, I think it was last spring, uh, where I had some computer problems and uh, we were off the air for about a week uh, while I was getting my computer repaired. And I'd said that I wanted to get a backup computer. And now I have a second MacBook Pro. So if I have problems, I will still be able to broadcast courtesy of uh, just outstanding uh, support uh, from listeners. And that was even just from one specific listener uh, who hooked us up with the uh, backup computer. Uh, but even uh, books and all kinds of stuff that people have invested uh, this week, I requested a Kindle book uh, for a guest coming on the program this Wednesday. Melissa Stein, a white woman suspected racist, her book Measuring Manhood about uh, the evolution of white supremacy uh, and gender, uh, and specifically the use of science to propagate uh, theories of white supremacy in the 1800s and on into the 20th century. This was recommended by Dr. Tommy Curry when he was on the broadcast uh, about a week, week and a half ago. Uh, but I asked for it on Thursday. Uh, one of our listeners uh, right here uh, tried to purchase it and uh, ended up buying it for themselves uh and they were telling me you know if i could figure out what happened i was on the phone with the amazon people for like 20 minutes trying to figure out uh what the issue was and uh by the time i went to uh write them to tell them what the amazon people said to resolve the issue a different listener had already purchased the book for me so uh thanks again to all the folks who have supported and just again i hope the broadcast has been continues to be uh worthy of your time and energy we certainly have uh, millions uh, of black people who are struggling worldwide who uh, definitely need support. 
uh, and resources. So always uh, super grateful for folks investing in this broadcast and striving to continue uh, constructive efforts here. Uh, with that, a couple things uh, before I get to the folks who dialed in. Um, the first one, uh, I cracked up laughing, uh, the Seattle situation. Uh, I guess there were multiple Seattle situations. So the one at Seattle University specifically where the uh, young students, uh, where they have been protesting and calling out white supremacy on the campus of Seattle U. That was in the paper several times. This was on the front page um, like some days back, right at the beginning of the week. Uh, and I think the headline that they used was uh, – dead white guys, too many dead white guys in the curriculum, and they wanted a more diverse program instead of just focusing uh, on white people uh, at Seattle U, and then the element about uh, Dean uh, Kelly, this white woman, suspected racist, her recommending Dick Gregory's autobiography when she was having the conversation with the student, that element, at least when I saw it, got added later uh, to what they were uh, protesting. Uh, the white person that you heard in the audio clips commenting about that, his name is Jason Rance, uh, suspected racist. I've played audio clips from his program here in oh. Seattle before. Um, when I heard that and he read the statement that he said was from Dick Gregory, at first I thought, you know, he might be uh, lying and attributing this commentary to Dick Gregory, who uh, didn't even say this. So I checked online and at least on his Twitter account, now it's not verified. I was looking for a little check. It's not verified, but I think that this is likely his account uh, and the statement was reprinted there as well and some other news outlets had that uh, statement that Jason Rance read during the audio clip they had that statement published as well so I will at least for the time being I don't have any reason to to think that uh, he made that up or what have you that Mr. Gregory did actually say that um, when I heard he said what he said I don't have any <laughs> commentary or critique of uh, Mr. Gregory I, I certainly remember the times uh, that he had been on this program the thing that I think is outstanding within all of that the uh, white racist dominated press they went to these young students at Seattle U to ask them well Mr. Gregory you know this is what he said about you all what do you think they didn't get an attitude they didn't call them any names they didn't get nasty about it in fact they said we have great uh, respect I'm paraphrasing but it was a concise statement that they released it was basically we respect Mr. Gregory's efforts uh, as an activist and what he's done over the years uh, but what we are protesting against is way beyond this one incident of this exchange with Dean Kelly and her referencing his book uh, this is years of racism that we're reporting on and protesting against. And they went about their business and I, outstanding, outstanding. You don't even try to get you pulled off track and, and arguing and bickering uh, with another black person. Outstanding. Uh, the only other thing about that that I will add, the more that I thought about that exchange with Dean Kelly, this white woman, where she recommends Dick Gregory's book, which just happens to be titled uh, Nigger, uh, which we did talk about when he was on the program the first time, or the second time around, excuse me. I had it right the first time, first time that he was a guest on the program back in uh, the spring of 2011. Uh, I said, I absolutely think that a refined racist would try to be slick and practice racism in a very subtle manner by recommending that book when you come to them with an accusation, an allegation that I think white supremacy is being practiced on this campus, specifically in the way that courses are taught, the material uh, that we are required to read, material that we have access to and what have you, uh, what's included, what is excluded. And you say, oh, yeah, you should read this book here. 
<laughs> just I, I absolutely, I absolutely, uh, from my study of whites over the years, I totally, it makes total sense to me. I, obviously, I didn't hear, I wasn't there, I didn't see it or what have you, but just processing it with my understanding of racism, white supremacy, I totally think out of all the books in the world that you could recommend and uh, talking about this subject matter and what have you, that's the book that you go grab and say, oh, yeah, you should read this book. You want something for your uh, curriculum. I'm, I'm not calling you a nigger. I'm just saying, you know, this is a great book that deals about racism. That's number one. The second thing that I thought uh, was important, or I guess, yeah, second thing, and then I'll, I'll go ahead and hurry up and move things along to the program. There was a great uh, report uh, in the Charlotte Observer. Uh, the article is titled, I Fought for Civil Rights. It is offensive to compare it with the transgender fight. Uh, this was written uh, by a black male. His name is Clarence Henderson, uh, where he was one of the folks who participated uh, in, I guess, the sit-ins. I guess that's what it's called. Uh, he was a student at North Carolina A&T in the 1960s, and he was one of the folks that was at the Woolworths. This is widely credited as kicking off the whole sit-in movement. But you can read it at the Charlotte uh, Observer, charlotteobserver.com. Uh, outstanding piece, in my opinion. It was just published uh, a couple days ago where he just does a fantastic job of rebuking the whole uh, comparison. I asked Dr. Curry about this last week when people compare uh, the whole transgender issue uh, and specifically the HB2 bill in North Carolina to uh, earlier eras of white supremacy. Phenomenal job. Great. I mean, just totally going through and destroying all the arguments. I'd read it, but it's a little bit lengthy, but you can check it out. Charlotte Observer, outstanding uh, effort. I'm glad he pitched that in. Uh, with that, I will go ahead and get to folks who have commentary that they would like to share. Uh, please don't wait till the last minute. If you have commentary, go ahead and get your hand up if you have uh, things that you would like to comment on. Uh, if you could watch the background noise, that would be great. Uh, if you know you are in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be super helpful. Uh, if everybody, if you could take uh, like five minutes uh, to share whatever it is that you uh, want to comment on or share, and then uh, we that way we can get to everybody who dials in who has anything that they want to discuss. And then if we have extra time, if you have other additional comments that you want to add, we can make time for that as well. Uh, I do request for the compensatory call-in only. Uh, people not use uh, metaphors. Uh, if we could just be clear, direct uh, about what it is we are discussing, trying to articulate as it relates to white supremacy, racism, counter-racism. Uh, as I've said consistently, uh, I think regularly when we discuss racism, white supremacy, that's racists and victims of racism. Uh, metaphors, analogies, comparisons will be made that are just not accurate. Um, and a lot of times they're not even uh, helping to clarify what is being articulated or explained uh, frequently because what's being compared is not accurate. Uh, but just if folks could uh, just no similes, no metaphors, no analogies, let's just be direct, clear, concise, make it plain about what it is that we're discussing. That would be great. Uh, and again, that's just uh, for the compensatory call in. I will try to prompt if uh, folks are doing that. Super appreciated. Uh, with that, the number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, the folks that dialed in who have a hand up should be with us. Uh, feel free to share. 
Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everybody. This is uh, Puff. Um, this is a commentary. Just a few quick comments um, about the um, about the Daniel Hose call situation. That last part that that you played. Um, I watched a documentary on 2020 yesterday that had to do with Daniel Holesclaw. And you could read in between the lines, we go back to that, the concept of protecting the white man. Just like Mr. Fuller pointed out earlier, that's a, that's another pattern. Just like Mr. Mr. Fuller uh, brought up, you know, we're going to uh, not to let the black woman have any right. I mean, she can be raped at any point or whatever, um, but we're not arresting a, a white man. The jail system is for niggers only. And, uh, you know, that's that's the way they feel about it. But with the Daniel Holesclaw situation, um, yeah, I've never heard of that, that other situation in, in uh, Syracuse, New York, that they were talking about. I had never heard of that case. But that that was awful. But Daniel Holesclaw situation. Um, remember how Gus you you said like um, remember when we were talking about the uh, three the three civil rights uh, workers in Mississippi uh, where they flogged the Tallahatchie looking for their bodies and they found like eight other bodies or whatever. And it, it was a similar situation with the Daniel Holesclaw situation in that, you know, only 13 people that we know about. But uh, she let the lady that was prosecuting, well, not prosecuting them, but one of the supervisors of Daniel Holesclaw, she let it slip that they had to look through six boxes of information just to find other people to interview. And it's like, well, six other boxes, we... We didn't know about these other people. And it's like you let the teeth slip. I mean, you got to read between the lines with that with that whole Daniel Holesclaw case. There's a lot of things that they didn't tell, uh, just like that other. But uh, to the San Francisco situation, uh, I think that's, that's very tragic, you know, that they shot somebody else. And I looked at the news yesterday, and they said that um, – they have a, they're getting a new police chief that's black. And, uh, you know, with the, with the shooting of this last person, uh, that was my first time hearing that, you know, before the, before the uh, police officer arrived on the scene, it took four minutes for him to shoot this person. And so, you know, the paramedic that said he didn't have a knife, I feel bad for her, just like the people that's taking all these incidents or whatever. Um, I feel bad for that paramedic saying it. I, I fear for her safety at that point, and uh, I'll mute my line. I posted the uh, ABC 2020 segment on Daniel Holtzclaw uh, on my Facebook page and on my Twitter account as well, at Until Justice, uh, where you can check it out in its uh, entirety. That segment was supposed to air last month, but they postponed it. I think it was supposed to air the week that Prince died, and that was at least what they said was a part of the delay. But anyway, I posted it so people can check it out. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to all the callers and the listeners. Greetings to Puff as well. Um, wow. 
this is very interesting. Uh, I wanted to say, in reference to the shooting in San Francisco of the mentally ill black male, um, I would echo uh, Puff's sentiments. It's extremely tragic. Um, I've seen quite a bit as far as how ment mentally ill uh, American Africans are treated here. And um, I've had some incidences with my in-laws because I've spoke about their mental illness before. And um, there's times when they had actually called police on one another um, just because their Alzheimer's would be flaring up in a way in which they would be highly argumentative. And um, we had to actually retrain them because, like I've said before, my um, father-in-law is an ex officer himself. So he would actually think he has something to relate to these white people with when he's in those uh, heightened states of agitation. And we've had to retrain them not to deal with the police. And I actually told them multiple times the um, answer to any sort of black person, whether you're 80 years old or whether you're a teenager, is to shoot you. They don't take you to the hospital. They don't take you to any sort of mental health facility. They shoot you. They don't jail you either. They shoot you. And then they'll make up an excuse as to why they shot you. So it's something that um, I think in, there's something that needs to be done about it, but nothing will be done about it in the system of white supremacy simple, simply because a person of African descent that has mental illness is an easy kill for them. And in, in a lot of cases, they can legally uh, wiggle their way, their way out of the situation, and I think it's a highly advantageous scenario for white supremacist police officers to kill out our um, people that do uh, suffer from mental illness. And um, the other thing I wanted to speak about was the uh, clip about the black woman that received the uh, Klan robe from the white male. The reporter actually said he believed the white male who said that he didn't uh, know what was in the bag, and it just made me think that um, white people always work to exonerate other whites. And he actually said it, and he said it, I guess you can say, in a quote-unquote sincere-seeming tone. And this is the kind of uh, rhetorical ethic mind game they play with us. They play on black people's emotions to make you think, oh, well, he's just trying to be um, equitable. I never use the term fair anymore. Um, but he's trying to be, um, you know, balanced in, in his interpretation of what happened when we all know that this is the type of stuff white people do all the time. I remember that you had just brought up the guy's name. His name was, uh, I think he was from the West Coast, too. He had the, the news incident on his job, um, uh, and he was on the show twice. I'm trying Darryl to Muhammad? I think it was, yes, yes, Darryl Muhammad. Um, that's the sort of stuff that they do. They do these, these subliminal, psychologically terroristic things, and it was sad for me to hear this black female um, in such uh, – traumatic emotion in such a traumatic emotional state dealing with this and wanting to sell her place just to escape um what she felt was uh, a feeling unsafe which i agree with you know when you get something anything that gives you a sign that you know any sort of white supremacist is focusing on you and you have a business they know exactly where you are and all they have to do is show up and shoot you or show up and kidnap you and string you up in some tree somewhere so i understand that and it just goes to show that white people always back up other white people regardless of what the scenario is um, the clip on, I think the person's name was Jermaine Carvey. Um, I was wondering, how do you, when his sister was speaking about them getting trained, how do you train a police officer not to harass another human being? I don't understand that when they use, like you said, the term discretion, they're able to use their discretion, and their discretion is a racist white supremacist discretion. And what I've always looked at is the history of the police, the police department. And when you look at that in this proper context, again, 
Um, it just shows you, you will never get any justice from them because this entire system was built on the terrorism of our ancestors, and the police were the most integral aspect of that in the very beginning, and it's carried over till today. So I never, ever, ever speak about training or anything like that because we're basically redundantly saying the same thing that we said for 500 years, and nothing's going to change, and you can't expect a white supremacist to ever look at a black person or non-white person as a human being, which is why these incidents take place in the first place. Um, the clip on Mrs. Montez in Syracuse really made me think, I'm wondering how many other um, women have been raped, because obviously in the police department there, they have codified racism and white supremacy in the sense that they're saying that um, unless a female fights with vigor or is, is uh, vehemently screaming no, um, that it's not considered rape, when exactly what they said on, on, in the clip, you know, a person is standing there with a gun, they have the law on their side, they have the discretion to make, basically make up any law they would like, and you have a, a, a newborn child there, which they raped you in front of. So um, I just don't understand that. I, I just wonder, like, how many incidences of people like him and how many other officers are, are doing the same thing in that er area that uh, black females have not come out to speak on. Um, and the last thing I wanted to uh, bring up was basically going back to Pam's visit when the um, situation came up where she discussed her belief that white women uh, can facilitate homosexualizing black males. Um, it's very interesting because I remember I had a friend who was a black male friend who was dating a white female, and in a sexual situation, she was um, she actually stuck her finger in his in his behind, with that, unbeknownst to him, and he ended up uh, physically assaulting her because he was like, what are you doing? She didn't say anything. She didn't warn him. She just did it. And I believe that white women actually facilitate deviance in black males by basically um, indoctrinating them into new uh, sexually deviant and disgusting white practices, and that's, I believe, another way in which uh, white women can help facilitate homosexualizing black men by trying to introduce them to sexual practices that are very rogue and um, giving them the impression that it's normal because those behaviors are normal for white people. And um, thank you for taking my call. I do have a, a workplace incident, excuse me, workplace racism incident that I'll speak on later. Thank you. Hurt? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Roz. Good evening, Puff. Good evening to all the callers. Man, um, that was an interesting story there. Yeah, I can see how that would um, cause someone to go. Yeah. Um, yes, um, I have a few comments. Um, first, though, on that one in Syracuse, very whole-scorish. Um, and like uh, Roz just said, I expect there to be a lot more victims in this case, way more than whole-score. This, this cop had a lot more um time on the force and it seems like he was a lot more emboldened and um that's what happened with whole school as time went on um and he kept getting away with it he did a little bit more i mean this guy was reckless and um being that he's in a college town huge college town like syracuse plenty of um prey that's not going to be there but for four years if even not going to be there year round um uh, could happen to them late at night they don't say anything, you know, they go on with their life. I, I think that there could be a lot of victims coming forward um, in the next, you know, if, if they make a big deal out of this, because we saw how they did whole school, it kind of got washed under the, the car. I don't want to say metaphors. It kind of got, kind of was ignored until um, the last couple of days of the case. And um, 
had a few other comments as far as the clips went. Um, very good clips today, Gus. Um, it was sad to hear that one. I think it was in Canada where the black man got shot. Um, mental illness. And I wonder, I, I never knew that that type of information came up when the cops scanned you, you know, if you had mental illness issues. So that was shocking to me. Um, but um, I never knew cops needed, you know, if you're in a car with someone else and, you know, they're pulling you over for violating the law. I didn't know that they didn't have the right to act. I mean, maybe that's up there. I, I, I don't know. Um, as far as the cleanse robe, um, all I could think about was Richard Williams, you know, when he went and put on the Klan's robe and dressed up like the Klansmen and started beating up the white people. And, um, you know, the way the guy made the comments, like, this was just some dumb white boy. You know, uh, what if it was just a mistake? You know, my logic is, what if it was done intentionally? You know, and um, the clip before that, same trend. Um, this was the one about the dean in Seattle. Um, up there in your non-racist part of the country, Gus, with all those good white liberals that don't see color. And, um, you know, white people spend a lot of time trying to convince everyone that well, they're all ignorant, you know, and that that one, that guy in that clip as well, you know, he was making a lot of excuses for her, for this book. You know, would you believe that a, someone in Seattle of all places would, would do something like this? Um, yeah, I do. And um, as for the KKK stuff, um, that just goes with the robe. And I've been seeing a lot of, you know, like we said, the Kamal Bell. And um, I, I expect to see a lot more of this stuff coming up, um, you know, especially with the, with the Trump effect um, that he's having on them for, for not um, denouncing them when they endorse them. I expect that we're going to see a lot of emboldened um, KKK People dressed up like it, a lot of neo-Nazi stuff, um, doing rallies and things, trying to provoke people. And um, I think we're going to see a whole new new, a new a switch in the paradigm of white supremacy coming up. Um, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Sure. Uh, other folks who have comments uh feel free i did i linked it when i wrote the description out to mention uh the case in syracuse uh with this raping suspected race soldier uh that ap report that came out uh in 2015 where it was talking about daniel holtzclaw but it was talking about how widespread the problem of enforcement officials uh sexually abusing terrorizing citizens uh males and females because uh, both were included in that report uh, and even if you want to link it to what was discussed last week about the former judge in Arkansas, it seems like this is likely a very, very common ritual in the system of white supremacy, males and females. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, did you all have commentary? Greetings, Gus. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Hello. Um, greetings to everyone on the line. This is V from New York. Um, I just had a quick comment. I came in on towards the end of the clip um, referencing the, the the girl in school that was being bullied. And um, uh, just hearing the, the pain in that, you know, that girl's, the way she spoke and in her voice and um, also the strength. 
of that school. Um, there are several, several situations where I personally have seen um, children being bullied in school and heard different stories of children being bullied in school. And I also, I actually saw a report or a, um, um, uh, yes, a report online in reference to a 12-year-old girl in Texas who came home from a field trip. She actually, she was in a predominantly white school and she came home with rope burns around her neck. And the school officials dismissed it as, you know, just kids being kids. Um, they were just playing on the swing. There was a rope swing tied to a tree. And I guess the rope got caught around the little girl's neck. And this caused a severe injury around her neck. And her parent was never notified. She didn't know about it until the, the little girl got home. But it just shows you how they just they dismiss you know, the lives of, of our young black, of our black children. And there was, the, there was another story that I, I saw of a young white child who the parent went ballistic because the little child had dirt on their clothes and got the volunteers of the program fired because the child, the child had a little scratch on their elbow and dirt on their clothes. But this little girl comes home with a real burn and it's okay. They were just playing on the swing, and, you know, they put antibiotic on it or whatever, and she's okay. But that just goes to show you, if we don't fight for our children, who will? And I just applaud, applaud that mom of this high school student um, and the strength that this student had to go on and succeed in school and become number one in her class. That's, that's an awesome story. I, I want to look up that story to see the whole, you know, to find out more of the background, but... Um, that again, that just goes to show you the the value of our children is so low on the spectrum, and we have to fight for our, our children. Um, thank you for taking my call. Oh, for sure, for sure. Just background information. Uh, I know it's difficult because uh, for some of these uh, clips where there's video that goes with it, so you can see what the people look like and uh, all that. This the situation with this young uh, teenage victim where she was being harassed and called nigger and all the other things that were happening to her, contrary to the popular notion that young white people are not racist and voted for President Obama and we're almost done with this whole white supremacy thing. Um, she, they mentioned in the clip, she's quote-unquote biracial. Her mom is white, uh, so I suspect that part of this problem is that right there, uh, her having a mom that I suspect is racist, particularly because I think the first thing that they said before they got into more of the details about what happened with her situation, when she first came home and started reporting, you know, I'm being harassed. They're calling me nigger and all this other stuff. Her mom just said, hey, you go to school to learn. You're not there to make friends. It didn't sound like her mom responded with, oh, we're in a system of white supremacy. Let me go and deal with this, uh, whatever I need to do. And I'm a white woman, so I'm going to be able to do a lot more. I have a lot more power in this system to go and get things. It didn't sound like that's what happened. It sounded like she just kind of brushed this off. Like, well, I won't even say that. It sounded like she did not take this seriously as my daughter is being terrorized and I, as her parent, as her mom, need to do everything possible, even if it means taking her out of the school, to solve this problem immediately. It did not sound like that happened at all, which is a big part of, you know, how all of this works out when you are in a tragic arrangement. I think someone had said, is it relevant if you have a, a white parent, even if you are a non-white person, having a white parent? Absolutely. But, yeah, I did think that that was uh, important because that's who they were talking to in the report. They talked to her white mom. I didn't see her. 
uh, father. I don't know if he's in the picture at all, but I will uh, post that story as well so people can see what her mom looks like and get more information. I did, even within that clip, I did uh, think because they ended on a happy note, and I'm glad to hear that the student is doing well now. She's about to go off to college, tops in her class and all that. That's great, but um, I almost wanted to say in a system of white supremacy, there will be more to come. Uh, you could end up going to college and experiencing the exact same thing, like what we talked about at San Jose State, or you go out and get a job and experience the exact same thing. That's why I think I followed that clip with what happened to the uh, L.A. council member, uh, the black male, where they were writing these notes uh, with a lynching and calling him a nigger and all this other stuff that it's probably just going to continue in a variety of different forms uh, throughout your life, that this is just, you know, the first incidents of white supremacy in your existence on a planet dominated by racism but i will hush there uh other folks that we have not heard from if you all had commentary you want to get in feel free hello guys yes ma'am Hi, hi. I just wanted to thank you for that background. I, like I said, I didn't miss most of the story. It came in at the end, so I do appreciate you um, posting that story. That way, I can get more background on it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other folks uh, who had a hand up? Do y'all have comments now? I don't know if folks are waiting for workplace racism, but other folks who have a hand up, uh, do y'all have commentary? We have not heard from you. Uh, maybe if you could give us another sentence so we can be sure. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. Uh, thanks. Um, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, that was an interesting segment. I think that was the first one or second about the lady. Um, I guess she's coming up with her own uh, line of dolls, I think. And um, that was interesting how uh, I think that may have been a male or a female conducting the interview. Asked at the end, well, do you do you plan on making um, uh, dolls that are, I guess, uh, colored or, you know, white or Indian? And she started or he started um, bringing up a lot of different, you know, labels and classifications, you know. But, you know, this person is responding. She's already doing the correct thing because we we are bombarded by all of these uh, uh, white-dominated images, and I don't hear anybody bringing that to uh, Mattel or any of these um, large uh, corporations that have been making these products and toys for decades but when a uh, non-white person puts out their own um, ideas then that question goes to them like oh well are you going to do you know all of these uh you know other types of you know dolls and whatnot but you know that that would be a good idea but man like you should go to the people who have the greatest ability to do that but they've shown that they do not want to do it so that was uh one thing that was interesting to me, the second, was a, uh, I read an article about that. I think, yeah, I think it was SAE, like the uh, the incident at Oklahoma last year, I think. 
at um, Wisconsin, it was, uh, I think, a suspension handed out, and I think they won't be able to um, start back, I guess, until November. And they said that the the uh, the black the black guy who was in the fraternity he was being choked and um, one incident they said he was called a racial slur I guess well that's how they worded it and it was at a Halloween party so you know I automatically thought that it was some kind of alcohol involved and and um, he was trying to report it and nobody did anything and he had to go to the university to, to finally get it recognized and. I guess that's what led to uh, the suspension and just other numerous incidents of just the uh, the white guys just running down the street yelling nigger and stuff like that, just like, you know, uh, proverbial uh, uh, racist behavior. And uh, that's, pre- that's pretty much all I have for now. The report about the doll in South Africa, I thought it was it, not surprising in a system of white supremacy, but uh, just the the gravity of the problem uh, for the black female who's making these uh, baby Thando dolls to say that in South Africa that it was difficult for her to find a black doll in South Africa. That is like, wow. I mean, South Africa is way dominant black people. Like, yes, there are white people there, blah, blah, blah. But I mean... I think like 80% of the population uh, in that area of the world is black. And for it to be difficult to find a black doll there, that is the magnitude of the problem we are facing. And then, like, if I could add one one last thing, that's that I agree with that because, like, the thing with images, I don't know if that was a white person that was doing an interview and it was saying, oh, you know, what if some people might think, you know, well, it doesn't really matter if <laughs> doesn't really matter if you have this kind of doll and that doll. And I'm thinking, yes, it does in my head. You know, if it if it didn't matter, you could have all kinds of uh, dolls. You know, that would reflect the people of the planet, which have melanin. But in you know, in a system of racism, can't have that. It have to be um, melanin deficient um, phenotypes and features, and just any kind of image. You know, superheroes and all kind of uh, fictional characters. So, yeah, like, that's, that is just, that is interesting. Just even in that area and all other kind of areas of the world, it's that same pattern. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, if uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you all have commentary you would like to share, Feel free to chime in. We are transitioning to workplace racism. Uh, We have a little less than uh, 30 minutes, uh, and I know folks get very eager to uh, wait until we get ready to transition to then decide they have things that are not related to workplace racism that they would like to bring up. But go ahead. Do not wait till the last minute if you have things you would like to share. Uh, The person that dialed in from a block number, you should be with us as well. Did you have commentary? Um, I do. Good evening, guys, and good evening to all the other callers. Um, on the, I, I missed, I kept getting, my, my, I kept getting cut off, so I missed pieces. Um, about the, the article, the report about the mentally ill black man being shot, and the police officer showed up, and, and all of those things were available. Mm, his medical records were available. I, 
I don't know. I, I thought you had to do something special to go into people's medical records. I don't know. But I said, you know, the fact that he that was available to him, you have to always think. Now that we're dealing with people who traffic in uh, men, women, and children, and traffic in body parts, that uh, maybe there is something there that would uh, let them know that this is a, a valuable physical specimen, and uh, it would be more valuable if it was if if that person was dead, or even even if that wasn't what they would put on there. I suppose they just changed it to incredibly dangerous black man. You know, take no chances, shoot on sight. You know. Trigger temper. So, I mean, they could just do that to make sure that person was killed and available for organ donation. Um, also, the one about, I couldn't hear all the article about the youngster who, I just heard a little bit that she, she transitioned, she, she went to another town and then graduated first in her class. I missed so much of that, but what I would ask, if it hasn't been answered, is how long did it take? for the mother to see a complete turnaround in that child's behavior. Because, guess you have always said that, you know, you know that there is a way out of the system of racism, white supremacy, because white people wouldn't be focused on it. Leggers are focused on it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I think probably that child made a 180-degree turnaround in a matter of weeks. Because I have I've, I've spoken to other parents who've taken their children out of really hostile, terroristic, racial environments, and they said, oh, yeah, within two weeks, my child had learned to read. What do you <laughs> I mean, it was just not two weeks, two months. Within two months, my child was reading significantly better. So I, I think that uh, I would love to ask that mother how long did it take for her child to completely overcome that. Um, and also, um, a, a relative of mine, a young black male, was sent to an HBCU for a summer program, and he was the most confused child in the world. Within two weeks, he was absolutely another person. I think that if we deprive black people of the poison of white people for two weeks, let alone two months, two weeks, that they would almost have a, they would have almost have a cure. You know, I, I believe that the turnaround can be that fast if you take away the TV and take away the, the, the continual access to white people. I believe we would get better just that fast. And then last, um, I, you said a movie called uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and I had never seen that movie. So I watched that movie because you said when white people realize that uh, sometime a billion years into the future that there will be no racism, white supremacy, they're going to say, let's kill everybody now. But uh, that was absolutely true. But what I was impressed was that the, uh, the, the uh, ape uh, mother, she never trusted any of those. <laughs> she like she switched her son. She said, "I don't care how much." She says, "I know these white people are coming for my child." She's like, "I am not going to be fooling myself or deluding myself. I am switching my 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 uh, child with this other ape's child, and uh, these white people are not going to get my child. No one is going to fool me." She's like, "I know how they roll." So, anyway, that was it. Planet of the Apes series. New movie coming in the installment. More more lessons. I checked the report again for the uh the young teen uh young teen, her name was Jada Jackson. Um I'm not sure. And this is in Ohio, uh if folks are interested. Um it doesn't say how long 
uh, in terms of the transition it took from going switching to a different school and uh, the dramatic improvement in her behavior and mental health. It doesn't say how long the transition was, so I'm not sure there might be uh, other other articles, uh, other information out there. I also thought it was significant in that report that there was a settlement, apparently, and apparently the school, uh, it seems, at least the report suggested, that with when they went to make a settlement and make some sort of financial compensation, that they originally, it seemed, they wanted Jada to not speak about what had happened. You know, we don't want to mess up our reputation for our academy here. Uh, and that they refused uh, that, at least I would say, in my opinion, outstanding to be able to talk about what happened. Because I think Pam has said consistently that's one of the ways that whites practice racism to get us to keep their secrets. So we're not able to discuss these type of incidents happening. And particularly in this situation, again, as I say, it's so popular that young white people are not racist, that we're almost done with this, that, you know, young white people are great. They love Rihanna and President Obama and all that stuff. Uh, so I'm really glad that, you know, they did get their settlement. They did get some financial compensation and they refused the non-disclosure aspect so that they could freely discuss the terrorism that she experienced. But I don't know about the length of time in terms of the transition. Other folks have uh, commentary. I'll look out for other people with hands. I guess folks are lollygagging uh, today about their uh, commentary. Uh, the other folks that are with us who have a hand up, if you all had any extra commentary you wanted to get in, uh, I'll keep an eye out for other uh, callers as well. Folks that are with us, if you all had any other commentary, feel free. Hello? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, you know, I had a, a comment about the doll story really just a um, story of my own because when my daughter was young, she wanted this um, doll called Baby Alive, and it came in white and black, and, um, you know, a white doll and a black doll, and they had it in a big toy book at Toys of Us for fifty nine ninety nine. So this was like her big thing she wanted, and um, this doll... You know, what What intrigued me was the doll used the bathroom, and I had to see how that whole thing worked. And, um, you know, you had to buy campers for the doll, and it, it became, like, a huge expense. But anyway, I go to Toys R Us on 42nd Street, uh, or Times Square. It's not there anymore. They just closed it. Um, and um, huge Toys R Us, big merry-go-round and Ferris wheel and all the tourists go there. Every exhibit, every toy has a huge exhibit. It was like a three stories, five, four stories. Huge Toys of Us. And um, all of the white dolls were fifty nine ninety nine, and all the black dolls, same doll, Baby Alive, was sixty four ninety nine. So I was like, man, this is crazy. So I went up and I, you know, asked them to speak to a manager. And like, yo, this is the same thing that's in the book. And he, you know, goes and speaks to someone, and they go speak to someone. So they say, oh, it costs sixty four ninety nine because of the ink. It costs more to make this doll because of the ink. So I was like, man, that's yes. So, you know, they went and got a general manager who, you know, gave me the doll for fifty nine ninety nine, and he gave me, like, a pack of Pampers for the doll and apologized and swore that they were going to change that immediately and, you know, you know, definitely not the Toys of Us policy and da-da-da-da-da. 
But, you know, they play a huge mind trick game with those dolls. And I'll, um, I'll meet my line. Thank you. That is fascinating. Wow. <laughs> because of the ink. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. That great job of going to confront them uh, about that. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah, because I had exact money, you guys. You know, I wasn't. I didn't have money to put nothing extra to it. It was like, listen, I, I added the tax. Y'all added an extra $5 just because it's a black dog. Yeah, I was very angry. Black tax, indeed. I've seen that play out both ways. In fact, I've seen uh, some where they will have the uh, the black doll cheaper than the white doll, even though it'll be like the exact same one. And they will give the reverse logic and say, well, uh, the black doll is not as popular or whatever justification they need. But the black doll will be significantly cheaper uh, than the white doll. I've seen where they work that uh, either way they want to go with the racism on that one. Other folks have uh, commentary. I was going to, if there was time, uh, since I said folks are lollygagging, uh, I had mentioned Ken Thompson. Uh, he's a black male prosecuting attorney uh, in Brooklyn. I believe he's the first black person to hold that office. Uh, but he's the one that has been uh, criticized this year with the uh, Kai Gurley, uh, Peter Liang case. Peter Liang, the non-white male NYPD officer, former officer who shot and killed a Kai Gurley. Uh, at the close of 2014, he was convicted, uh, but then uh, his the recommendation that he got from Ken Thompson, who's a black male, was that he not get any jail time. Uh, and that's the sentence that he got, no jail time. People were very upset about this uh, and kind of the same thing. You know, he's a coon, he's a sambo, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I was saying on the previous program, Ken Thompson, he's and this is, was reported way before we got to the Akai Gurley, Peter Liang situation, uh, that he had kind of been... Uh, really strongly publicly advocating uh, going back to review cases where you had a lot of wrongful convictions uh, and said, hey, some of these people have been incarcerated, some of them for decades, they should be released uh, because they should have never been convicted in the first place. The evidence was bad or uh, eyewitness testimony uh, was not credible or whatever happened. These people shouldn't be in greater confinement anyway. They should be released. Uh, and he's got a lot of people. I think he's widely, they, they target what he's been doing as, as the standard. Uh, and this, I guess some people might even put this in with what they call criminal justice reform. But in a, that would be enough right there. But in addition to that, I, I think at least myself, and I'm sure other people forgot, Ken Thompson also was uh, a part of the prosecuting team for Abner Luima, the black male that was sodomized uh, by former NYPD officer Volp. Uh, he was a part of the team that got the prosecution and jail time for former officer Volp in that case. And he represented uh, Nafisatu Diallo, the black female uh, who was sexually terrorized by Dominic Strauss-Kahn, uh, formerly with the uh, IMF, International Monetary Fund. He represented her as well. I mean, he has a pretty, in my view, a pretty extensive, I guess I would put it like this, looking at what he has done, uh, that I know about at least, that's publicly available. Uh, anybody that's going to criticize, name call, saying he's a coon and a sambo for what he did uh, with regards to the Peter Liang case uh i would say what is your record in terms of what have you done to work against racism and white supremacy and let's compare uh who has done what against racism and white supremacy if we're going to go and criticize and fault find with another 
victim of racism. I would add to that. None of us has done enough because the problem is still there. But uh, just looking at his overall body of work, uh, I don't think Ken Thompson should be very high on anybody's list of coon of the week. Uh, if anybody had commentary or you disagree, feel free. I had commentary, but I don't uh, disagree. <laughs> um, I wanted to say, in reference to your clarification of the clip with the young girl that was being bullied, I think it's a, a great example of white people not caring about children, especially their own children. And I just, I, I truly believe that when they have children with non-white people, those children become their toys. It's almost like a cat with a ball of yarn. They just, they have their pet nigger or whatever non-white person that they can either confuse or terrorize psychologically. And um, regardless of what that child goes through, their intention is not to really facilitate the survival of that child. It's more or less to confuse them and facilitate them becoming a buffer for white people. And I just think that that whole clarification of her not really um, taking proper steps as a parent of a child to uh, facilitate rectifying that situation as quickly as possible just uh, is just another example of them not caring about their own children, um, especially when they're uh, non-white children, I would say. If they're white children, totally different story. But non-white children, absolutely. And um, another thing is um, today I went to... A, uh, an event uh, for the Caribbean Cultural Center and African Diaspora Institute in New York City. And um, before we actually got there, we had made a stop. Actually, we left. We left on the way home, and we made a stop to, to, to pick up something on the way home. And I got out the car, and there was a homeless uh, Latino male. Looked like he had been asking for money all day. He said he was really, really hungry. And... Um, he was standing in front of a, a, I guess, like a Pizza Hut Taco Bell place. And I didn't really want to get him garbage, but that's what he wanted. So I said, well, you know, I said, I'll get you something to eat. So I went in, and it took a long time for them to facilitate everything. That's why I was getting the meal done. There were a lot of people in there. And then when I finally came out, I got him, like, a full meal, and I gave it to him. And he was talking to the to, to elder uh, Latino male. And the look on his face was just, I don't, need, I don't know if he didn't think I was going to come through because it took such a long time. But um, he didn't expect what he got, and I was just glad I was able to do that for him. It's something that I've done before. If I see, you know, someone who I know is in a bad situation, black or non-white person, and they need something and they're asking for food, I'll definitely get them food. Or if I don't have it, have uh, food on me or whatever, um, I'll try and get it for them and, and give it to them. So it, just, um, it, it felt good to be able to help him, and he was extremely uh, thankful for that. And... Um, I just say, hey, if you see people suffering out there or going through something and you can do something and it's a non-white person, and more importantly, if they're black, even more important, um, you should do so. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was uh, about two days ago, my wife called me at work and um, told me that there was a black female who visits our next-door neighbor, and he's uh, a drug addict, uh, basically like he's an alcoholic and a crackhead. And I believe that this black female that he's dealt with, we've seen him with her numerous times. I believe she's a prostitute, but they're friends, and she comes over there, and I think they do drugs and things like that. So she calls and tells me she's highly upset that he literally beat the living crap out of her next door. She's watching this. My son is in the car with her, and um, he slammed the door in her hand. She says she thought that he might have broken her wrist. Um, he punched her. He knocked her to the floor. He kicked her a few times, and she was laid out cold. 
And um, my wife was just traumatized by it. And um, I told her, I said, well, you know, don't get involved. Because we've seen her there before. And I said, I guarantee you she'll be back. You know, I said, you know, he's mistreated her before, but never that, never that badly. And um, so I told her, you know, not to get involved. I told my son not to get involved. And um, my wife ended up leaving um, and coming back, and she left. And then uh, just yesterday, she was back there again. Um, so it just goes to show, like, some of us get so caught up with white validation, I mean, even to the level of drug addiction, that we will put ourselves in danger and continue to go back to that uh, mistreatment simply because I truly believe we're suffering from Stockholm Syndrome as a race, especially those of us who have, have a, a, a civic affinity for our white people. And thank you so much for taking my call. I'll meet my line. For sure. Right on. Black self-respect helping out uh, another victim of racism. Uh, uh, M1, did you have commentary you were going to add? You should be with us, sir. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be real quick. Uh, also, uh, in the case of B.A. Thompson, he had ran against the previous district attorney, Charles Hines, who, who while he was quote-unquote known as the house detero he in my my opinion uh did, did a lot to harm victims and he had beat d.a Hines, and d.a Hines said he was all his full support behind him instead d.a Hines decided well i'm going to run on the opposition ticket because I'm just not going to give up my office this easily. So that is one another thing about Ken Thompson, just to show that he is a victim. And he also took part in warrant dismissal. There's a program that he had where thousands of people were able to go to a particular facility and if you had a warrant, you came in, the charges would be dismissed. And it wasn't a trick like a lot of other places, like a lot of other people do. So these are good things that he done. This is why I guess it was so surprising to see after the trial of Peter Liang for him and to secure a conviction on charges for him not to seek prison time for him. You know, with that solid body of good work, why do this? Why just ask for the disregard of Mr. Gurley's life? Uh, that's all I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Definitely understand people being uh, upset uh, about what happened and what have you. Uh, Peter Liang not getting prison time uh, for taking a black life. Uh, just we are still in a system of white supremacy. Uh, nothing would surprise me uh, with regards to if somebody said something to him if he was pressured to do something anything uh could happen particularly when you're talking about uh, an nypd uh, officer uh them 
having the prospect of facing uh, prison time. I mean, you can just look at aggregate, the situation in Syracuse with the officer who rapes this black female, and uh, he does not get convicted for rape. He just gets uh, this conviction uh, conviction uh, for dereliction of duty or some, you know, lesser lesser sentence. Uh, this sort of thing happens all the time with enforcement officers. Again, we are in the in the system of white supremacy, and I'm at least myself. Uh, I certainly do not think President Obama, Ken Thompson, former DA, uh, for, excuse me, former former Attorney General Eric Holder, current Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Uh, I do not think any of them get to dictate what's going to happen to any white person. So, you know, uh, we have about. Five minutes. If folks had any other comments they wanted to get in, not related to workplace racism, you should speak now. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida, do you have comments you wanted to get in, sir? Not hearing you. I don't know if you tapped your mute button. Uh, retired fighter. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, wait till workplace racism. All oh, right on. Right on. Uh, anybody else, uh, folks that had a hand up, anything you wanted to get in before we get ready to transition to workplace racism? Can I say something about Ken Thompson? Yes, sir. Okay, um, well, I think that you're absolutely right. You know, they don't have any power, and that's why I always say I don't think a black person should be a prosecutor because you're not going to be able to effectively do that job, and you're not going to be able to do that job in equity for both sides, you know, straight down the middle. But um, as for him, you know, he's the DA of Brooklyn. And, um, you know, just to give people who are not familiar with New York, I mean, Brooklyn is like the size of Chicago, you know, and demographically the same probably makeup. It has a huge population of blacks, almost a million. And um, Brooklyn has a lot of crimes. And um, those cops could have ruined his career, if they would have um, said, okay, you put that Chinese cop in jail, we're going to forget evidence, we're going we're gonna to forget our story, what happened at this crime scene. I mean, you have huge cases that go down in Brooklyn. And um, I, I don't think he was willing to risk his career uh, for, that, for that one case. Um, he fought it hard in court, but um, I think that definitely – there was going to be some repercussions if he gave that dude time, and he did what he had to do. The caller at 1664, did you have comments you wanted to get in, 1664? Uh, last four digits, 1664, did you have commentary, or are you just listening in? Not hearing anything. Uh, let's see. Caller, uh, caller in the Bay Area, did you have commentary? I did not, but I'd like to participate in workplace racism. Oh, right on. We're almost there. <laughs> we will. Be okay, sure. super. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Uh, I was waiting for ra- workplace racism. Also. Oh, right on, Grant. Folks are ready to, for workplace racism. I am as well. Uh, anybody else have commentary they wanted to get in before we get to workplace racism? Uh, yes, I have to add one more thing. I wanted to interject this. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to interject um, the thing that that lady was saying, you know, before the about the social media. Um, that's very important also because those kids, 
See what's happened is YouTube has mon has monetize you can monetize your videos now. So the more views that you get, the more um the more money that you get. And so people are making prank videos. Uh and and some of the people are black and they 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 enact these skits and stuff and the only thing I would say is uh, parents, don't let your children do all that time unsupervised. You see what I'm saying? Just with a phone, just looking this stuff up, because that's what they interact in the classroom. And they they reenact this stuff in the classroom, and it, it not only takes away from their education, but it takes away from the other kids' education, because I have to like call somebody to address this and all this type of stuff. So I'm asking parents to not, the only time they should be with an unsupervised is when they can pay the bill. Like when they get in college, maybe. But uh, before college, letting them have unsupervised times with a phone, it's not happening. Don't don't let them do it. That's, that's all I can say. It's not like uh, we were when we were growing up. See, I'm over 40, so it's not like when we was growing up where, you know, you had just that phone on the wall. These phones got the internet to them and all this type of stuff. And your kids are researching all this stuff. And my my plea is that, you know, parents, you know, if you, you know, are interested in, in uh, counteracting racism, don't let them spend unsupervised periods of time on that phone. Don't do it. And that's it. I'll move my line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did think that she had great uh, suggestions when they switched and uh, brought in someone who was just talking about uh, things uh, parents can do to kind of minimize uh, some of what children might be exposed to on the Internet, whether they're being bullied or not. Uh, that I thought those were great uh, suggestions uh, that I would definitely recommend and even minimizing uh, to not, you know, have them. I just they had an article. Uh, I think it was in. The Washington Post, uh, where they were talking about uh, now, I guess you're having large numbers of people, period, uh, but especially younger people where they are addicted to being online. And so they're just constantly on their phone or computer or tablet or whatever the device is. uh, They're just constantly on it to the point where they can't be detached from it. So they're having a difficult time concentrating if they're in school or on a job. They just constantly got to be on their phone and texting and looking up stuff and and just all of this. So it might even be a good idea to to, uh, restrict the amount of time that they can be you know, invested in all of this. So I've heard some people putting kind of a, a two-hour cap on it, unless they're doing some schoolwork where they're doing some research or something of that nature, but uh, just not allowing them to just sit there and gorge uh, on these mobile devices and being online and what have you is not the healthiest thing. Uh, that before, I guess even before we get to workplace racism, I, I, I would say uh, at least one thing, uh, not to go overboard in terms of the commentary on Ken Thompson, but forgetting everything else, just the fact that I think he got a, a significant number of people out of jail and it seems like a good number of them would have been black. That might be one thing, uh, regardless of anything else, good, bad, and different that happened uh, on the job, to be able to say that hey, I got, you know, three, four, five, even one, but to say I got several black people out of greater confinement who should not have been there in the first place, 
I think that is outstanding. Uh, in a system of, of racism, white supremacy, I'm sure those folks were extremely appreciative of what he was able to do. And according to the reports, he's he's done quite a bit of that. That's something that he's been publicly advocating the whole time, which, again, I would say would seem like something that I suspect a lot of racists would not be pleased about. I could be an error. Uh, can I get on one last thing before we transition? Because I thought of something as you were speaking about the Internet usage, something um, that might help parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a lot of phones, there's ways of like um, using a security feature to lock apps. And what you can do is actually put a code in the child's app where you're locking their access to the Internet, YouTube, all of that stuff. And you, you personally would have to unlock the app for them and make sure that they don't have the code. That way, so if they have to carry a cell phone, if they're traveling to high school or whatever, and in the, in, or to school, and they need to carry a phone for safety reasons, they still won't have that access to that sort of stuff when you're not around. So it's just something I thought of um, just now is that, you know, as a parent, you can lock the app so they don't have access to it unless they're in your presence. You can monitor their time, and then once they're done with it, um, I believe even if they if the phone gets shut off and turned back on as far as, like, the screen going dead, it'll automatically lock the app. So just something I thought I'd put out there for parents. Thank you. Right on. Right on. Yep, that article is in the Washington Post today. Uh, if you all want to check it out, just talking about particularly younger people uh, where they get just totally dependent on their mobile devices, being on their smartphones and that sort of thing. Uh, and it is it is a problem. Uh, I suspect in this report they're just talking about white people and they're not even talking about the racism that you might be encountering. That's a whole other layer to it. Uh, for workplace racism, if folks would like to comment, the number 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, the folks, we already have people who were waiting for workplace racism, which is outstanding. Uh, caller in the Bay Area, uh, did you have commentary on workplace racism you wanted to share? Oh, sure. Um, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, super. Okay, um, so I work at this um, um, black nail spa. It's a nail spa with an esthetician and an electrolysis and a hair salon inside of a, a building that's ran by a black lady that I know. I've been knowing her almost 20 years. So... This is the place where the Caucasian lady, um, all she's the, uh, elect, wait, she's the electrolysist. So she rents the, um, office for her, for that. Um, for the past couple of Saturdays, she's been trying to catch me in the kitchen area. So she can talk to me because I'm always coming and going, especially if I know she's in, going to go in that area. I stay in another area a little longer. So I have to go in the kitchen, though. So she'll linger around in the kitchen or come back out of her room and go in the kitchen. So today she came to work. Uh, Mother's Day uh, weekend, we had a um, spa. Uh, the ladies came together and um, had a spa day and all that. So it was a large festivity for the ladies. So the Caucasian lady is there. So the owner is talking to the um, young ladies. They're black about um, what she likes to do with single moms and this, that, and the other. So the Caucasian lady keeps coming back and forth to the room. Now, mind you, she's normally inside of her room or in the kitchen area, but she keeps coming back and forth to the room where all the black ladies are getting their 
Manny Petty. So um, she just keeps listening. So she she came back this week after that ordeal. But in between that, she keeps throwing the owner under the bus, saying, you're the only one that does anything around here. And I was like, oh, okay, how are you doing? So um, she's like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. So um, she was like, oh, you know, no one does. It's so disgusting in here. They're just so nasty. She, every time she thinks that I'm in the kitchen, she'll try to come in the kitchen just to just to spark up a conversation. Oh, no, no, let me show you, let me show you. So she's very uh, aggressive and dominant. So um, she's showing me the microwave and how nasty it is and how it's about to break. And it's not nasty to that magnitude because I work there, but it's, I'm working on the place. I'm, I'll get it into gear. But anyway, every little thing that is wrong with the place, she heightens it. So I know she talks about the, the black lady and the, the remaining of the salon to her clients, which are predominantly Caucasian, because one day she came in and um, smelled uh, a scent she didn't want to smell. It wasn't anything lewd. It was just probably lavender or whatever we spray in the room to keep the oil going. And she told her Caucasian client, oh, my God, it just smells like something's burning in here. And oh, so she sprays some vinegar and water. <laughs> so now it smells like green. So it's like, oh, God, I can't deal with that smell. So I think I, I, I make her feel her particular way. So she's trying to get close to me. So she catches me in the kitchen. So now she's throwing everybody under the bus and she just, they don't do anything. Uh, see, I'm just going to get me a microwave. I'm just going to put it in my room. I'm just going to get me a microwave and put it in my office and hide it in my office. Because she said she's going to hide it in her office because she knows that there's some, somebody goes in her room. I say this because there's a lady that comes in and waxes. And, um, uh, a, a black lady, um, she comes in and waxes twice a week. <laughs> they allow the lady to go into the, the electrolysis room and do waxing in this lady's room. So it's all black women getting all different forms of waxes in this lady's room. So that was a big deal that everybody acted like didn't happen. But... When I say that I'm going to get the salon in order, it's because it's out of order. It's a black old male spa that's out of order. Um, and this Caucasian lady has had a particular control over it with her, uh, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't breathe, I can't smell because of the owner. She was tiptoeing around the Caucasian lady. So now the Caucasian lady is acting funny with the owner. She's uh, comes in the kitchen because she's just throwing her under the bus. So the owner comes in the kitchen. Oh, hi, Miss Judy. So she says, hi. And then so she keeps doing what she's doing. So now the owner's probably trying to figure out what's going on, but we're busy. So the place is completely out of order, and that's who will call state board, or that's who will call um, or have one of her clients call and report the black nail salon so we get fined because there are quite a few fines in there prior to me getting there. So I do have a um, major pay decrease working at this salon and I'm going to figure something out, but I'm not going to leave the salon because I can tell by the way this white lady is acting in the salon. She wants to see it fall because of all the little, I mean, every time she catches me in the kitchen, she's just, you know what? Look at, look at this. See? See? They're just, I can't even find a fork in here. 
You know what they're doing with them? Poke, poke, poke. You know what they're doing with them? They're throwing them in this garbage. And I went in the garbage one day to get my favorite fork, the wooden handle, my favorite fork with the wooden handle on it. And it was hair. And then she did her face because <laughs> it's black hair. <laughs> it's hair and all kind of toenails. It was just so gross. I just went and let it go, let it go. So that's my workplace racism. I just thought that was it, I just interesting when we're trying to do something on our own and trying to be the best at what we do when we allow Caucasians in our setting to make them feel welcome or to make people believe that we're uh, universal or um, not racist or whatever, or I, I take everybody in. That's an error because while they're in our settings or in our establishments, they're trying to make sure that we don't maintain these businesses or establishments. And I'll meet my life. Hmm. Interesting. I'd uh, be curious to know how this white woman got there in the first place, but I would be, I would at least have to think if there is a way to get her out uh, of the establishment. Um, that, I guess, would be one plan. And then I also, if you, it seems like you have already concluded that she's making an effort to see if she can make this uh, enterprise fail. Uh, and I mean, whites have a long record of doing that sort of thing deliberately sabotaging uh black businesses so it's great you know if you're already seeing that to then be going into plans things that you can do to neutralize that effort uh, if you think it's going to be trying to report you all for fines or any sort of violations to get those uh corrected uh so that she doesn't have anything to report but i'd really be looking at like how can we get her out of here like i don't know if it's you know she contracts to be there or whatever the case is but um, or I, even how the other black people that work there, how they, if they, you know, all dig her and think she's great or what have you, but that would definitely be something I would be, uh, processing if there's a means that we can extricate her and move along with just black people working here and trying to, to have the best business we can without her even being a part of this process. I will, I'll, 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 I'll ponder on that and create something and keep you updated with the whole the whole call log appreciate that appreciate that folks had questions they want to ask our bay area caller uh to clarify anything or any observations around all of that feel free as i've stated this sounds like black entrepreneurship as i've stated you are not going to end your difficulties with white supremacy uh if you become a business owner. Uh, it will just be manifested in a different manner. Uh, even if you don't have uh, white employees or white people that you're working with directly, it's still going to be a problem. It'll just be in a different way that you'll have to deal with it. But uh, definitely, if, if, you, if nobody had uh, questions or observations about what uh, she shared with us, if you have your own incidents of workplace racism, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I had um, an incident this week that was very interesting uh, and actually quite hilarious. Uh, I had gotten a phone call from a member. I work for a health insurance company, and I had a, a call from a member, and she had received a bill, white female, um, about, about 35 years old, 
and she had gone to a doctor visit, a dermatologist visit, and she got a bill for about $65. So she calls in, and she's saying that uh, she believes that uh, the bill should be paid in full because uh, it's not fair. She can't afford the bill. And she said, um, so I said to her, I, said, I looked at the bill. I talked to her, and I then told her, I said, well, the bill actually paid out correctly based on the policy that you have. So then she went into this tirade about us robbing her. So after she goes on, I, um, I mute when she's talking, and I'm just listening to her, and I'm starting to smile. So then she tells me, um, well, I was lied to. I said, well, um, who lied to you? She said, well, I called before I went for this doctor visit, and I had asked if the bill would be covered in full, and I was told yes. And um, now I'm getting this bill for $65, and I can't afford it. So um, I said, well, what I can do is I can uh, pull the call so we can see what was said because, um, you know, the $65 essentially was applied to her deductible. The deductible is basically the portion that a member has to pay before the insurance company will pay on any of their claims. And depending on the policy you get, it can be very high or it can be uh, maybe like $600 or as high as maybe 6800 depending on the policy. Hers was actually a 5900 and uh, so she says that, you know, she was lied to. She was told that the bill would be paid completely under the company to pay it. So I said, well, what I'll do is I'll have the call pulled. We'll listen to the call and see what was, what was discussed with you. And if something like that took place, then the company would basically honor it, but that person would be reprimanded. So they pulled the call, and the gist of the discussion was she literally said, um, at the dermatologist, I would like to know if dermatology visits are covered. So the the representative told her, yes, they're covered. Okay, thank you. Bye. Click. That was the conversation. Not are they covered in full, not is there any deductible, any copay, just is it covered? So he answered her yes. She said thank you. Click. Done. So I call her back, and um, before the first call ended, she started going off with F-bomb tirades and whatnot. So I put her on mute, and I was laughing, and I said to my co that I have a normal base on the line. Um, whenever I get, like, customers that are just crazy or members that are just crazy or act out or they're racist, I call them normal base. If they're female, I call them normal base. If they're male, I call them normal base. Psycho is the reference. And um, I said, I have a normal base here. And they were, and as, as the call was ending, I was explaining to them what happened because they heard me going back and forth with her. And um, I kept my, t my, my tone was the same. I wasn't, I didn't show any emotion whatsoever, but I was laughing when I muted her because it was just ridiculous the way she was talking. So then I called her back and I said, well, listen, we did pull the call. The uh, representative handled the call correctly. He was actually another black male who I know very well because he helped to train me when I got there. So when I saw his name, I knew that he handled the call correctly. I didn't even think twice about it. And um, he absolutely did. So I said, well, he handled the call correctly. You called. You asked him if it was a covered service. It is a covered service. So she said, well, if it's covered, why am I paying $65? I said, well, essentially, you're receiving what's called a negotiated rate. When you have a deductible, so the negotiated rate is a reduced price you get based on the insurance you have. So I said, if you did not, if it was not a covered benefit, you would have paid $200, which was the actual price of the visit. You got the reduced price, which is 65, and it was applied to your deductible. That's why you have to pay it. So then she said, I want to escalate the call to a supervisor. I said, okay. So I escalated it. A white male calls her back, tells her the same thing. She goes into the phone call tirade. 
she he went and told her that the representative handled the call correctly. There was nothing to to make changes about, and it played out properly per your, the terms of your policy. So he just told she just told him after cursing him out as well that um, she wants to escalate it to his supervisor, and this is going to be an Indian woman who and he told her my supervisor is going to tell you the same thing because she doesn't care. I said, well, basically your policy is a legal document that will hold up in court. You signed up for this. No one you know, forced this policy on you. You chose the policy you signed up for it and you didn't even know what a deductible was. Now that I'm explaining it to you and you realize that it's almost $6,000, you're angry about it and you don't have $65 to pay this claim. So now um, by next week, it's going to be escalated to the, the second supervisor who's going to end up telling her the same thing. And then I'll find out what happens from there. But that's my workplace racism. White people are just functionally psychotic. They're racist white supremacists, and they will stomp like babies when they don't get their way. I can't believe she's 35 years old and can't pay a $65 bill and does not what, know what a deductible is. But, hey, that's how white people function. They, they're just illogical in all ways um, except for in practicing racism. Thank you so much for taking my call, guys. It's good practice to uh, remain calm not get emotional when they are acting out and going into their rage uh, or tirade over the phone. Excellent practice. Uh, just stand calm, monitor my heart rate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are absolutely right. <laughs> now I'm going to say you're absolutely right because they try to get you to come out of your skin so they can say, pull the call. And when they hear you, if you sound like your tone elevates or like you're agitated in some way, they will call you on that in the call because they'll say that that's facilitating the other person's agitation. So when you keep your composure and you're able to have a direct conversation, it's based on what's in the policy. So there's no arguing with the person. It's just basically, in some cases, reiterating what you said before. And you just keep doing it. And like I said, between bouts of her going off and being angry, I was laughing because I was just like, she's illogical. She's not making any sense, and anyone who listens to any of these calls, me and the other supervisor that calls her back, um, you know, they're going to see that she's not making sense, and she's just basically pouting because she can't afford the $65, which, if you can't pay a bill, you can always ask for a payment plan, and they'll make it as affordable for you as possible. As long as they know that they're going to get regular payments, it's not an issue. But she wants it to be completely paid, which is not going to happen. So, like I said, it's, 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 it was just hilarious. Thank you. But, yes, you're right. Keeping your calm is essential. I believe that's one of the greatest contributions that uh, Nick Neely Fuller Jr. has talked about is to kill the emotion and think logically. Think like a scientist when you deal with them because that's how they are in their approach to white supremacy. That is our, what our approach has to be in order to find a solution. We cannot be emotional and going off on tirades because that's what they utilize to play that, that psychological chess with us and sometimes to kill us. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, folks have observations, uh, questions they want to ask based on what they've heard or uh, your own incidents of workplace racism, feel free. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, my uh, example of uh, workplace racism is uh, kind of uh, constructive, really. Uh, uh, it, it, it was an example of self-respect and 
Uh, it also was a uh, example of uh, uh, non-white so-called adults uh, showing younger non-white black people uh, that uh, we care and are willing to support you uh, to the fullest and take care of them. Uh, as some of y'all know that I'm also, have been a, I've been a, a high school football coach for uh, 35 years. And uh, uh, this afternoon, uh, the conclusion of spring football practice ended today with a uh, what is called an intra-squad scrimmage, which basically means that you uh, you all of the skills and techniques that you learn during the 20 days of spring practice, you put it together with the uh, with the scrimmage against each other, uh, offense versus defense. Uh, the logistics of the game itself normally would be should be supported by and financed by the the institution uh which in this case most of the people who are in charge are either non-white non-black or white people uh but they did not uh so uh one of the coaches uh circulated around by the method of text tag Uh, some money towards uh, you know having a barbecue for the young people after the after the after the game and and uh, and when I when I saw that text it quickly shot to my brain uh, that uh, hey yes this is an opportunity uh, for us to uh, no one has should have to be able to tell us to do for our children we do it for we do it without. Uh, hesitation and no one has to uh, ask us to do that uh, and uh, so I quickly uh, contributed uh, my money along with the other coaches contributed their money towards it and we also put our time into uh, having uh, some food for the uh, young people uh, after the game uh, the head coach uh, received money from a black male an attorney uh, to pay for the referees uh, for the game, you have to pay the refs. Uh, then he was given something like four thousand uh, dollars to book going to uh, an account that head coaches have, uh, and he used that money to pay for the referees for the game. Uh, the we have a good relationship with the uh, managers of the stadium, which is right next door to the school. All of them are black, and, and uh, so uh, they leave the stadium open for us to use it, not only for that scrimmage, but also for the, uh, for the uh, uh, our practices, uh, because it's actually, it's technically it's our home stadium. Uh, the University of Miami, uh, something like half of their staff, came as visitors. We had food for them. Uh, some of the players from University of Miami also showed up. Uh, there was something like maybe a thousand uh, parents uh, and, uh, you know, brothers and sisters and other, uh, other uh, 
close people to the uh, young people who are playing in the game who showed up there. And uh, so all in all, it was a very good, uh, very good setting. And I could almost see the, uh, the, the jealousy in the face of the, of the white people who were supposed to be in charge and, and uh, uh, actually uh, putting their uh, uh, efforts into this process when they showed up to see, because my idea in mind, they expected it to, to be a, fa- a failure in some way or some means and ways that they can criticize what was going on, but they didn't have anything to criticize because uh, you're dealing with, you were dealing with a situation where there's a whole lot of non-white black males who have years and years of experience uh, of, of uh, doing this type of thing and and we are very been very successful at it. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, uh, the transition from high school to college uh, for a young person who is talented enough and also who is ambitious enough to have gotten their academics together in high school is worth tens of thousands of dollars to receive an athletic scholarship. Uh, and, uh, so it's something that's, you know, worth a lot of value to put towards. And most of the guys that we coach don't just go to college to play football. They also come out with their high school, excuse me, not their high school diploma, but their college diploma prepared to go into the workplace or whatever, wherever they, uh, their, uh, ambitions take them. And I just wanted to share that with everyone. So thank you for listening. Grand, grand. Another illustration of uh, racists looking to sabotage, or even the term I think we used with uh, Katrina, talking about uh, Ray Nagin, schadenfreude, uh, looking to enjoy black people failing. And if they can uh, help, aid in any way, sabotage uh, black people trying to do something constructive, that's even better. Uh, but that's outstanding, being able to, uh, black people working together, doing something constructive, particularly to help out black children. Awesome. Uh, they can just, racists can do nothing but sit back and be disgruntled about it for the day and go back. I'm sure they will go back to work immediately to see how they can mess things up uh, in the future. But that's, that's great. Anytime you can look uh, to have some constructive interaction with other black people, great, great. Other folks have commentary, uh, workplace racism, if you have uh, either questions on what you've heard thus far or question or your own instances of workplace racism that you want to make sure you address uh, getting close to the end of the program, feel free. Yes, workplace racism. Um, I just wanted to update you uh, that the, um, in, the, in the political thing, which I know a lot of people are strongly against, which that's good, that's good. but. What happened was uh, we've been gerrymandered. You get four votes. And we've been gerrymandered so that the black people are all together in this crazy-looking thing, and we get one vote. So um, we have one black person who has promised uh, the, other, the other three people that uh, they can build a great big giant prison next to the HBCU. You know, ready-made, totally made population. It's going to be great. 
good money for everyone. And the other candidate has said, oh, that sounds like a terrible idea. I don't think we should build a great big prison next to the HBCU. So we get somebody sends out there 9,000 potential voters. So all 9,000 voters get a terrible letter from the guy who says, no prison here, no prison. We're not going to create a predatory environment for the children. So they send out all these letters about baby's mama, daddy, and, you know, crook and thief and drug addict and, you know, just a scourge of the earth. And I'm like, everybody says, what do we make of this? What do we make of this? I said, throw it in the trash. You don't even know anyone who has $5,000 just to spend on stamps. So I said, that's just Republicans. So then I guess that wasn't enough. So then they take around, and the candidate that they're supporting, they send out $5,000 worth of uh, pieces of mail saying that he's just a, you know, crazy Negro and he's just awful too. So I found that very fascinating, but I assured people that, you know, black people really don't have $5,000 to just spend on stamps for no good reason. If they have a problem, they'll get upset and come to you in your face and they'll have a little nervous breakdown and it'll be like that. But this is not something that white people typically do strategically. So I just found that very interesting and I reassured people and, and that made sense to them because we know pretty much everyone's economic capability and spending $10,000 in stamps either way is just not something we are capable of doing. Um, Last, I wanted to say that there's a scam out there that says if you want a free Android tablet from Elite Access Network, that uh, you should decline because they say that um, they like to collect your personally identifiable information, and and such as your email address, your name, your home and work address, and your telephone number. They also collect anonymous demographic information, such as your zip code, age, gender, preferences, interests, and favorites. Uh, they also collect information about your computer hardware and software. And uh, they also collect IP addresses, browser name, domain names, access times, and referral websites. So I probably, if you see somebody who wants to give you a free tablet, you should decline. And um, I think... That's it. I just don't know. Uh, I found the Republicans pretty fascinating. They have a lot of money to waste. Hmm. I, know. I know uh myself, I think Thomas said this last week as well. Folks have appreciated the uh, updates over the if it's years now uh about the effort. None of that seems like workplace racism though. The tablet thing certainly not. Um but yeah, that seems like maybe that could be in the earlier portion. I'm, I'm just saying it because I know people uh, frequently stray from the topic. I don't want to encourage other folks to feel like they uh, can chat about things that are not related to workplace racism unless I have misunderstood something. Uh, well, I can always put it in the front part. Grand, grand, because I'm sure people would appreciate hearing the updates, especially as we get closer to, uh, yeah, I don't know if you all's election is this fall or before we get to everything that's going down in November, but I'm sure folks and myself would appreciate hearing the update to how this evolves uh, as you continue with the process, what you learn, and, and how they're responding to your efforts. But yeah, just I don't want to encourage other folks to feel like, hey, Karma gets to call in and talk about non-workplace things. I will do that too. Well, you remind them, Gus, that I quit my job for this. For sure, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Full-time effort, full-time effort. Folks have commentary, questions, uh, or if you had your own incidents, workplace racism, feel free. We are 
almost at the end. So speak up if you had something you wanted to make sure you got in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, uh, just uh, really quick. I had a couple of uh, observations. Um, like I noticed that sometimes when uh, suspected racists, like if they're saying something to me or uh, other non-white people, I guess to get a reaction out of them, they'll say, oh, uh, you know, I was just giving them a hard time. Like they, they won't say they won't say anything. Well, they'll say other things, but I've noticed that phrase or that term, you know, whatever that's supposed to mean. But um, I, I've had a, a discussion or two with that with the uh, white male. Um, he I, he was talking to uh, a, a white female. You know, he'll you know joke, make fun of her. Sometimes I guess uh, she was taking some kind of college courses, and he said something about her being remedial or something like that. And uh, so I had, I was asking him some questions and then he was saying, well, you know, sometimes uh, I'm not really being, I'm not being, uh, I don't know if he said honest or I'm not being uh, very truthful. And he was saying, it's just like, it's just like saying somebody going to Haiti and I'm, and I'm telling them enjoy the trip. So I had asked him, so I said, well, using that word trip, you didn't necessarily mean like enjoy the stay, meaning like enjoying the uh, the way on the way to Haiti. So he just kind of like gave a smirk or whatever. And that was like, that was one incident. And um, there was a, there was another time where I had went to the, the uh, post office and I guess they were making some kind of changes as to how we're going to pick up our um, mail. And there was these two non-white guys they were uh, pretty much arguing about, it was one of them was a manager at that location. And the other one was a person that was coming to pick up mail. So he was like, well, what is, what is going on here? And I'm just sitting there just pretty much listening, you know, just ready to see, Hey, you know, is there going to be any changes or, you know, do I still get to come pick up the mail? So he just wanted, I guess, you know, say that he knew more than the other non-white person and the other non-white person saying, hey, you know, I'm just applying for this job. And he, he said something interesting. He said, you know, I still got to get approval. I got to get approval that I can get this done. So I'm thinking in my head, oh, man, so this guy, he, you know, he's given that, that title of a supervisor, but, you know, he's still under that you know, under that limit to where he has to go and ask someone, someone who I suspect is a white person to really get his ideas accepted or whatever. So that, that was the, uh, that was another one. And one last one, I heard the, uh, the, the same white male, he would say stuff like, well, you know, I would, I would tell, I would tell you the truth nine or 10 ways before I lie to you. So, you know, I'm like, man, what? <laughs> What does that what does that even mean? So he says, you know, I just I just come up with ways that I could tell you the truth and and uh yeah, so this I, I stay still asking them questions. So he a very interesting uh uh suspect the racist. So that that's all I have.
fascinating wordsmiths uh when we say masters of deception just that right there even uh, for people that have been listening to medical apartheid where they talked about uh different ways of being very convoluted i think doctors uh racist in the medical industry do this a lot where they will deliberately use very convoluted language and they'll throw in a few uh monosyllabic uh polysyllabic words uh, so that you just feel like, oh, man, my puny, you know, Negro brain, I can't even understand what's being said. This, you know, incredibly intelligent white person, they do that sort of thing all the time. That is an all-day practice of white supremacy just right there. And him, him even mocking this sort of thing, like, oh, yeah, I can tell you the truth uh, nine different ways before I tell you a lie just to be deceptive. Now, I mean, even that. Now, how is it that I can figure out nine different ways of telling you something accurately? That's why I say the importance of... You know, not, let's not use metaphors. Let's try to be as direct, exact, precise, clear, as simple as possible. Not, you know, let me figure out, you know, 20 different ways of giving you accurate information so that you can understand. That's classic racism, white supremacy, just right there. Um, yeah, just outstanding. When you, in my view, you can do that sort of thing all the uh, all the time, particularly if you're on the job and you're around white people. Just listening, just being observant to the type of things that they say. If they're you know making comments like that, uh, and other ways that they are just talking, sometimes directly about racism or just talking directly on the job, you can learn a lot just by being quiet, observing, asking questions as uh, a caller just did, and seeing how they respond and what have you. Just fascinating, fascinating. Um, as well as the, uh, in terms of, uh, saying the person is remedial or that sort of thing. Cause in my view, they do that sort of thing a lot as well. Talking down to people to, to suggest that they're, uh, not intelligent, that they're ignorant. You're not as smart as I am, particularly if they're talking to a non-white person. That's just, that also seems to be a standard part of, of racist culture, uh, and the way that they think and talk about, uh, non-white people, especially black people. Anything else folks want to make sure they get in? Everyone uh, satisfied? Questions or your own incidents of workplace racism? Uh, the caller at 4683 should be with us as well. 4683. Yes, sir. How are you everybody doing, man? I'm calling. I'm going to be real quick, right? Uh, I'm calling, man. I'm from, from Houston, Texas, man. I'm up here in, in North Dakota, right? And uh, I, I've been working with these Mexicans, these girls, you know what I mean? And uh, so, you know, and I noticed that Thomas had said, it's that, uh, it's that brother, that professor, I think, uh, from from the university uh, probably a week or two ago about the non-white and the black, you know, and I like the black. I, I even like the nigger because, see, because see, I think we 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 that non-white is putting everybody with us. And see, I don't tell you something, man. These Mexicans and these natives, see, you got it's a lot of. Uh, I'm in North Dakota. A lot of what they call natives is up here, and uh, these people they don't like black people, man. You know, and I work with them. And see, one thing why I know about Mexicans from back home, even from back home. It's like they always try to act like they don't understand. You know, they always try to act like they, they can't understand what you're saying. They don't speak English, you know. And then 
and 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 what I notice is that uh, see in Houston, you know, uh, uh, Texas predominantly, see the Mexicans own a lot of businesses. They own a lot of stuff now. Now, now you know, you come in. As long as you is if it's on some kind of street level thing, you know they deal with you. You know they wear wear the clothes like we do, uh, ride cars like we do, talk like us. If it, if it's anything non constructive, it's cool. But once you try to get into the business side of things, it's like what you doing here. Mexicans don't like us, man. You know, so I just really wanted to call because, see, I, I like the black and even the nigga, you know, like Mr. Fuller say, I we all qualify. But I think that we should separate ourselves from the rest of these people, man, because they ain't, they ain't with us. Chinese, them Asians, they don't like black people, man. You know, they don't. And not when it comes to when they get to getting abused, then everybody want to join in with us. But see, ain't nobody going through what we're going through. You know, Asians, Mexicans, yeah, they ain't white, but they ain't black neither. You know, and then see, when they get to talking, and then if y'all remember, man, that's like when Farrakhan had that march up there, and they had them so-called Indians on there, and them people was, and they were like, man, you, 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 you seen it, you listened to it, but you couldn't really feel it. You know, you couldn't really feel it. Then they try to put they that little stuff what they going through with our stuff. But see, all them people, see them natives, they get money every month. See, they've been repaired, repar reparations, and uh, they up here killing themselves. You know, I, I was talking to this one lady. She said they had a suicide power. All these kids going down there drowning themselves in that river. You know, because all they want to do is get high. They got their own land, but ain't nothing there. You know, they ain't got nowhere to work. There's nothing to do there. They done built them. But guess what they got? A jail. They don't got no Walmart, no uh, no kind of economy structure, but they done put their own jail up there to lock people up. So you got them kids up there getting high, getting drunk, and go down there and drown themselves, man. And then they try to, and, and we, we even get to, you know, trying to incorporate them with us. And, and you know, I just want to say, I mean, you know, and I work with some Mexicans, man, and I know these people, they, and, and I'm from Texas, man. I, the Mexicans don't like black people. They don't, you know. They ain't white neither, but, hey, a Mexican is a Mexican, a native is a native. Uh, well, I ain't even going to call them natives because I don't even know what they is because now they research starting to say that we really natives. And then when you look at it, it's like we don't look like Africans. Africans really don't even like us. You know, now I'm pretty sure we originated from Africa, but when you look at it and look how Africans treat us, you know, and they don't even teach that we came over here on slave ships. They don't know nothing about that till they come over here. You know, so we probably some people that originated from Africa, but was came here on our own. You know, before you know the so-called so-called slave trade or whatever. But I mean, I'm sorry, man. But yeah, man, it, 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 we on our own. You know, uh, so I just want to say, man, when people get to talking, let them people fight their own battle. 
you know, we got to, you know, because cause ain't nobody going through or they went through what we going through. And ain't really nobody trying to defend them. But see, when they get hit on their ass, then they want to scream. Hop in, just white. Uh, we are pretty much at the, the close of the program. And uh, really, I, I do appreciate the commentary, but this is what I said, Karma, before. Um, people do have a tendency to stray from workplace racism. I know you did mention a few times that you work with uh, Mexicans, um, but most of the commentary is not really about workplace racism. It's about the uh, labeling in terms of people uh, identifying as black and how other people feel about black people. That's not really, at least from what I heard, that's not really related to workplace racism, uh, which I said before, there does tend to be a a problem where people will kind of stray from the subject matter. Um, If uh, the view in terms of what you were sharing, if that's something, uh, if you could just share that a little bit earlier, I don't know if you had the ability, but if you could call in a little bit earlier, uh, to share that, that would be grand, uh, and folks could you know, kind of give their views, uh, what they think about that. Um, I know we will be back on during the week, so if you want to call in to get some input on that, that would be great. But this segment is is focused specifically uh, on workplace racism. Uh, the only thing I would say quickly before we wrap things up is uh, I mentioned that word like before, uh, the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I don't really see any evidence that anybody likes anybody. Uh, white people don't even like other white people. Uh, I see lots of evidence of that, and I see lots of evidence that black people do not like other black people. Uh, I would not focus on that as much as just replacing white supremacy with justice and as you said not thinking that you have anybody anybody uh who's going to be looking out for your uh best interest Uh, i think dr welsing would frequently say you should be thinking that you're going to be an army of one because frequently that's what it's going to come down to uh if you're trying to do something constructive and working against racism white supremacy likely in many instances you are going to be by yourself unfortunately that is what we are dealing with uh, with that, we will wrap things up. Should be here uh, Wednesday. Uh, Melissa Stein, she is a white woman. She wrote Measuring Manhood. Always enjoy having white people on the program. They are the problem. Uh, to be able to ask questions, uh, interrogate her book. Uh, Dr. Curry, highly recommended it. Uh, Measuring Manhood, uh, the evolution, particularly in terms of uh, the way that science has been used to uh, advance and justify the practice of white terrorism. Uh, she should be here, uh, excuse me, Wednesday, not Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday, this coming Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific. Uh, we should have some other programs that are happening this week as well. You can just check the Black Talk Radio page uh, or the Facebook page uh, for updates. Uh, generally, the programs are posted a day in advance. Uh, certainly, you can feel free to drop an email if you have uh, questions, problems, guest suggestions, gripes, uh, until justice at Gmail. Dot com. I think I was able to post all of the articles that I referenced and said I was going to post Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, the piece that's in the Charlotte Observer about the uh, black male who rebuked the notion of comparing uh, the transgender issue to racism, white supremacy. Uh, There's quite a few others. The piece on uh, being addicted to the Internet. It was quite a few articles. And the, the report about the uh, young teen in Ohio who was being uh, bullied uh by racist uh, or racist classmates. Uh, That's posted as well. If you have difficulties finding any of those reports, let me know, and I'll be sure you get them. Uh, With that, thanks to all the folks who tuned in. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening, and we'll be back at minimum on this coming Wednesday. Uh, As I consistently suggest, uh, I would encourage sobriety. 
I think that would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We already have enough problems. We do not want to make any of their jobs easier in abusing, terrorizing us, particularly if you're going to be out and about. I know it's getting warmer and people are going out to the beach and the holiday is coming up next weekend. If you are going to be out and about, certainly remain codified. Uh, if you are going to consume any alcohol, I don't think you want to be behind the wheel. Passenger, driver, even as a pedestrian, I think folks heard what happened with Jermaine Carby where he was in a vehicle. He was not the driver and he ended up being shot and killed. Just keep that sort of thing in mind. We want to be able to make the best possible decisions to keep ourselves safe. Uh, under conditions of racism, white supremacy, you and anybody that you might be responsible for. Uh, we do not want to make Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, these other raping race soldiers, we do not want to make their job any easier by not being able to think clearly when they're stopping us or if we have to have any contact with them at all. Uh, and again, buckle up if you're going to be in a vehicle. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.